Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. And who do you think is the richest person in Venezuela? The daughter of Hugo Chavez. Hello. Anyway, 0-2. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. That was Vin Scully speaking the truth like he always did. The late Vin Scully, an absolute legend who passed this week. Turns out he had some views on politics as Just well. Just one of the greatest broadcasters of all time, and he didn't talk politics all that often. One time he had Reagan in the booth. Do you remember this? 1989 All-Star Game. Bo Jackson hits a home run on yeah. off Rick Russell. Basically, first pitch, second pitch. Ronald Reagan's in there, but... Other than socialism a couple of times here and there, Scully didn't talk politics that much, but man, was he good. I would love to be able to have like games called like that where he gives you this great little talker on socialism. He's like, anyways. (laughs) (laughs) He goes right into Owen, too. Doesn't doesn't miss a beat. Such a pro. That's the hardest part about baseball commentary. Gotta fill it. You gotta fill so much airtime. It's it's not different than a podcast, really, but he's gotta do it live. I mean, listen, that that is what, when we talk about question number two and the three, that's why I pick baseball. Yeah. Is because of the community that it fosters, and you have 162 games. You're on the road. You got to know something about something other than the pitch count. There's mm-hmm. no place to hide. It's a lot of time. To you got to have that conversation. And I just, he is absolutely the best that's ever done that, and it's not even close. Yeah, we're really fortunate to have grown up in an era with a guy like him, a guy like Jim McKay. Brent Musburger, Keith Jackson. I mean, we've really had some great broadcasters. Also, what a life to live that you're like, okay, I got Ronnie in the booth. Bo Jackson's about to knock one out. Oh, I know. I, what a life. Just, lo- I mean, think back. God, if you could do stuff like that again, right? I mean, so good. Jack Buck, another one, Yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, we got a great episode for you today. A great guest, uh, Ronnie Jackson. You may know him. Uh, he's now a congressman. He was the White House physician under President Trump and President Obama and President Bush. I'm so excited. Like, one of my favorite members of the House, Ronnie Jackson. You are going to love this interview. I mean, he's got, first of all, his story is incredible. It really is. But he's also not afraid to give his opinions on basically <laughs> None <anything>. the least. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, look forward to that at the end of the episode. We told you at the beginning of last episode that Tuesday was a a very big primary day for the Republican Party in helping to set the Senate field. Yep. And so we would give you a little tour, a little grand tour, of our thoughts about all these states that are critical uh, to winning the majority and, like, sort of where things stand, right? We might as well start with what happened on Tuesday, which the big one that everybody was focused on right up until it went the way that the Republicans wanted it to go, Mm -hmm. at which point, like, all of a sudden, Kansas abortion became the issue that everybody's talking about. And there's, uh, well, I'll get into why, why. Yeah, we'll get into that too. Mm-hmm. But in Missouri, there was uh, three, four candidates. We had two of them on the program. Mm-hmm. Eric Schmidt, mm-hmm. who ultimately won, and Billy Long, because he's the most entertaining member of Congress, right? He was never in a situation where 
he was actually competing to win there. It was largely a three-person race. For a long time, Eric Greitens, the former governor who had to resign for a, a uh, litany of, of problems. Yeah. And, and Vicky, Vicky Hartzler. And Vicky Hartzler. Yeah. And it was a kind of a three-way deal. Greitens yeah. was winning for a long time. In the last four weeks, he took a real nosedive, which was sort of what Republican operatives had wanted all along because it turns out that in addition to the kind of scandal that made him resign for off, uh, I'm talking about Greitens, that made him resign from office, yeah. he ultimately ended up in a custody battle where some stuff came out that was unbelievable. You just don't want, like, having a candidate like that would absolutely destroy your chances. In a ruby red state, yeah. your candidate would lose with the stuff that was coming out. And I'd mentioned it before, like, uh, when, when, when Senator Hawley was the AG of uh, Missouri, his office started the investigation into Greitens, and they found just like, I mean, it was just like a nightmare. It was tough. And then you had Holly go on to endorse uh, Vicky in this race, who ran a good race. Yeah. Ran a great race, clean race, can't say anything negative about her. But I think there's a huge, like, sigh of relief that, you know, we didn't end up stuck with Greitens. No question. I mean, look, Eric Schmidt was always the strongest candidate. He was the strongest fundraising candidate. He was the strongest in terms of his his ability to deliver on the stump, his ability to, to intimidate Democrats, too. I mean, this is a guy who looks the part, sounds the part, incredibly reliable conservative, right? Right. And so Republicans, by and large, you know, Vicky was in that category, too, in terms of, like, if she were to win, everybody would be good with that. Everybody was kind of in a anybody but Greitens because we'd have to spend <clears throat> tens of millions of dollars to try to save a red seat when the rest of our candidates are getting outspent four to one. Right. The thing I always found wild about Greitens is like, sure, there was the scandal when he was governor and he resigns and all that. And now he's going through this messy divorce and all of this is going to be out there in public, like with the affidavits and all that. Why would you run for office in such a high profile way way in the middle of a child custody debate? I just don't. I could just never see myself doing that. Well, and, and I think it speaks like to his lack of character, honestly. And I don't like the guy, so I'm really happy he lost. To be honest with you, it, it is a perfect contrast because we had something similar happen in Pennsylvania where Sean Parnell, who was on the program, yeah, got himself into a, a messy divorce where there was all kinds of allegations levied. And he basically said, keeping my family intact is more important than anything I'm trying to do. Right. And that should be a priority because that's the thing is like when it's a divorce, you're going to have like messy allegations all over the place to prioritize. Like, Hey, listen, I may have political ambitions, but I want to deal with this and not drag everyone and my kids through this, whether these allegations are true, you know what I mean? Whether they're true or not. The thing with Greitens is not only were there these allegations, which, which can come out in a divorce at the same time, it's like, there is like historical fact and like police records of wrongdoing before any of that stuff. So totally. it was like, there was just like no redeeming this guy, but he kept pushing ahead. Well, the only way he tried to get redeemed was a late endorsement by Donald Trump, which I feel like we got to talk about. Like, how can we It was we so not, rad. How can we talk about Missouri and not he talk didn't, about so, this? So, so Trump didn't endorse Greitens. He right. endorsed Schmidt. Well, he endorsed, he endorsed, <laughs> yeah. and the Trump endorsement yet again is That's the winner. A, for, for the for the awesome mop up for, right there. For, for the listeners, in case you somehow missed this, uh, Donald Trump uh, did an ultimate troll move and decided to endorse Eric. He sent the statement out and it said, yeah. "I endorse Eric. He has my full." And it was sort of tongue, it was it was awesome, sort of awesome tongue, tongue in cheek. He's like, you know, I trust the people of Missouri to make this decision. I endorse Eric. Of course, Eric Schmidt, Eric Greitens, 
he left that all unclear. Uh, you know, spokesperson said, you know, the statement stands for itself. And, <laughs> so uh, <rad. laughs> and you know, so rad. I mean, it was just, it was, what was funny was just sort of like how it just kind of became farce, right? Like, so like Greitens immediately puts out a tweet saying, proud to have the president's endorsement. Schmidt follows along with the same thing. And it's like, everyone just sort of like shrugs and is like, I don't know what any of this means. And, and, meanwhile, again, meanwhile, and President Trump picked right. He picked the winner. <laughs> meanwhile, what happened in the race is exactly what the polling showed the right. day before, right? right? I mean, Schmidt rolled 20 some odd point victory. A big, vi- I mean, if you're talking about competitive primaries, when you're posting 20 plus points, that's a big, that's a statement, yeah, right? Right, that is. Anyway, good good news for Senate Republicans. I think that means, in large part, he's solidified. Now, there's one problematic piece of this that we should mention. There's a third-party candidate. Now, this guy oh, God. named really? John Wood, with the backing of Dan uh, uh, Danforth. Yeah, yeah. John Danforth. Um, he filed as a third-party candidate. He ran the Jan 6 commission. And I mean, this guy, oh, yeah, really? It, yeah, he's trying to run as a conservative. Obviously, that is not the case. We'll see if that ultimately sticks. I think he ran under the auspices that Greitens was going to be the nominee. My hope is that he comes to his senses and gets out of that race because ultimately we can't have one thing, anybody pulling off the Republican. One thing I got to give Dems credit to, and I saw this firsthand in New York, what they do is that whenever there's like a, a, a third party, kind of like uh, with with Dems in New York, there's also like the Working Families Party or just like right. the straight up Socialist Party, whatever. They like find a way to kick them off the ballot, right? They'll find like regulations with signatures or anything like that. They will kick them off. Like across the country, Dems kick off any like third party kind of person that could draw votes away from them. Like, Wait, but I thought they were about access to democracy. Oh, oh weird. That, that's the thing is they, they always claim they are. Everything they say <laughs> is a goddamn lie to begin with. But, like, you got to strong arm these fucking people. Like, libertarians are the same. Like, they grind my gears in the same way. It's like there have been so many races that I've seen that the libertarians have been able to siphon away, like, 1% of the vote and the Dem gets elected. It's like, you fucking people. Like, <laughs> knock this off. <laughs> you're, you're speaking my language. I think I have a very clear <laughs> record. I think I have a very clear record of strong-armed politics in my... In my tenure, I agree with you entirely, and we ought to do more of it. Unfortunately, that is not where we're at. Um, but but the other race that was a, of major importance for the Senate was in Arizona. And Blake Masters was favored to win. He was endorsed by Trump. He was endorsed by Club for Growth. He was endorsed by a number of different entities. Peter Thiel, well, obviously. I, and also, I like to remain impartial in primaries because I think it, you know we should let every candidate on the show speak their piece because I think, you know, we provide an avenue for candidates to be heard outside of the news media, which just attacks these people. So I don't like to endorse before a primary, but I was rooting for Blake. Like the guy ran, you know, I love his message. It's great. It's a good message for folks out there. And look, I w- there's nothing I would love more than him beating Mark Kelly because that guy is awful. I think it's a good and- contrast. And like he's a real, you know, fresh face. And like the guy's obviously been very successful outside of politics. And I just think. You know, hopefully that's a good contrast. And the good thing with uh, Masters is that he does have Peter Thiel behind him. So you know that there are very, very deep pockets. Peter Thiel wants to win this race. He's going to commit millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> well, we general. hope so. That is that is that better be the case because Democrats are outspending Republicans four to one at this point. Right. And there is no place that that is more the case than in Arizona, because Mark Kelly developed a small dollar list for years before he ever entered politics. And what's basically happened is he, he raises like $20 million a clip, 
right? I mean, every quarter, this guy puts up record-shattering. Right. Not to mention, like, the personal fortune that he accumulated by basically just doing business in China, where, like, he used his name brand. Like, he likes telling – I call him Spaceman as, like, a pejorative thing because yeah. he's like, oh, I'm this astronaut. Well, like, for years on Chinese television – There'd be like Mark Kelly ads of him like selling his supplements. Of right. He's like, I went to space and now I'm I'm making all my money he's in China. He's a Chinese pitch man. He is. Yeah. That's his job. That's really. like how he made his personal fortune is he's basically – and like everything that happens in China is under the auspices of the CCP. So if they were not like, yes, this guy can be a good messenger for us, they don't let you speak to their public, right? So like he has the go-ahead from the CCP to be like, all right, make a few bucks, you know. Do, do what we tell you to, basically, in China, and we can both mutually benefit. This guy builds a fortune off that, and now he's a U.S. senator. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. And he's, by the way, party-line senator, right, in a conservative state. I mean, he's probably to the left of the average Dem. The guy votes really Yahoo's, really Yahoo shit. Like, anytime there's an opportunity to tax the American people or spend more of the American people's money, he's on board. And he tries to act like, and the media, because they know how precarious a position he's in, how like, you know, the other senator from Arizona is cinema. You right. kind of have to be like, you, you can't be a party hack in the state of Arizona. Mark Kelly is a party hack. But it's, it, yeah, right. It's to the point that- And the media that, just covers it up. Well, it's he's the, definitely to the left of cinema. Yeah. He's definitely Way left of cinema. Everybody's asking how is cinema going to vote on this tax hike? People don't really know yet. And Nobody's everybody, everybody everybody assumes that I mean, Kelly's he's like Karl Marx up. compared to cinema. It's, it's, it's what Holmes always says. It's like the media in D.C. just like, oh, well, yeah, Mark Kelly, obviously he's going to be a yes vote. They don't even ask. They don't even ask. ask. That's the thing is they never ask him. They always cover for his ass to be like, well, you know. They'll chase Kirsten Sinema around the entire Capitol and she's not up for re-election. He's up for re-election and it's just like cricket. It's like they get the message where they're like, oh, this senator's in cycle. Can't can't give him a tough question. Don't talk to him. But they they also just apply a surname to his name, right? They also moderate Kelly. Which is... (laughs) Right? Which is the biggest Wait, there's lie? No, there's no evidence for it whatsoever. But this is this is the key that you see with like New York Times, Washington Post, and others. They apply this moderate label contrary to any evidence whatsoever, right? And this he is a he and Cortez Masso are like perfect examples of people. She ran the DSCC for crying yeah. out loud, completely right? out of step with the voters. Yeah, total. I mean, it couldn't be come more partisan that's the most partisan job in politics right, right? Yeah. but no she's a moderate right she's the moderate <laughs> and they're, they're both voting with joe biden 95 percent of the time totally. and, and also just no like I, I would love to see an analysis done comparing mark kelly's votes to aoc's i bet they mirror so much that guy is so far to the left made all his money in china this is like i mean he's like the manchurian candidate like this is a nightmare situation and for the voters in arizona he does not represent what people in arizona want hundred percent hundred percent so before we get to the rest of the Senate races, I, I, if you read anything about Tuesday's primaries, chances are it was inundated with this media narrative about abortion, yep. right? Why that is is because there was a ballot question in Kansas. Let me read you verbatim mm-hmm. what the ballot question is, and then you guys can tell me which way you voted, Yep. right? Here's the ballot question. Regulation of abortion, period. Because Kansans value both women and children, the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not require government funding of abortion and does not create a secure a right to an abortion. I'm reading verbatim. I'm not, this is, that wasn't a mistake. That, that's what it says. To the extent permitted by the Constitution of the United States, the people, through their elected representatives and state senators, may pass laws regarding abortion, including but not limited to laws that account for circumstances of pregnancy resulting from rape and incest, 
or circumstances of necessity to save the life of the mother. Absolute gobbledygook. What the fuck is that? That makes you think that this is like, okay, no abortion unless it's like a life-threatening emergency or rape or incest. Well, basically what they're... You would think that. But but if you read that, you would say, okay, I'm a pro-life person. I do think that you should be able to legislate abortion, right? But if you're a pro-choice person, you're also saying like... Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I would like to legislate abortion, mm-hmm. which is which is what the text of this says, right? In practice, apparently what it does is not allow or not bake into the Constitution of Kansas a, a complete prohibition of abortion. I did not get that out of those sentences. Right? Right. I mean, it's not even close. Not it's even not clear. Even. So my question is, how does something like that pass a legal test to get onto the ballot in that form? You know, I mean, isn't there isn't there a legal remedy ahead of the ahead of ballot printing that could write it in more plain language? Well, I think this is part of the problem, right? Democrats are very good at masking what it is that they're attempting to do yep. in ballot questions. Republicans are uniquely bad at it. Yep. I mean, really bad. 100%. They get lawyers to draft these things instead of communicators to draft these things. Mm-hmm. And you end up with what we're seeing here. And Democrats are pretty like straight and straightforward with it. And so oftentimes you see this confusion. If you're a pro-life person, you intended to vote pro-life, you can see right here where you would have voted the wrong way. I don't even know. Reading that, which way would you vote? I would flip a coin. I, I'd have no idea. No idea, right? So 60% of people end up supporting the position that's ultimately attributed to pro-choice. And so what does the national national media say? What's the takeaway from Tuesday? Not Missouri. Pro, Not Missouri. Pro-choice Kansas. It's pro-choice Kansas. <laughs> and by the way, this is going to be the biggest issue in the campaign. Oh, uh, yeah. Right? What they've been peddling for the last 60 days that you don't care about inflation you don't care about your pocket, but you don't care about the status of the country writ large. The only thing you're really concerned about is abortion. Yeah. And that that literally is now the narrative in Washington, D.C. You know what? Here's my take. Don't tell them. I agree. That's the thing is, if, yeah, if they want right. to really trick themselves into this delusion, I want them to not see this groundswell. Yeah. They don't. I, I want them to be like, oh, you know, we helped Joe Biden lie and change the definition of a recession. Yeah, I think abortion's definitely the number one issue. I mean, it's incredible, right? Yeah, it really is. And like, to ch- you really want them to make that the conventional thinking among the like DC set who has zero fucking idea what it's like to be in a place where gas prices are as high as they are, grocery prices are as high as they are. You don't want them to get the memo on like what the American people actually care about. Keep stay out of touch. Stay out of touch. Stay you know, run touch. run ads saying that like, yes, I want abortion until like day of delivery. That's what we're for. And don't and don't talk at all about anything else. Nothing else. Just stay on abortion. Hundred percent. Everybody's good. I mean, Kansas to prove that, right? Stay on it. Stay on it, assholes. I think every red state they should just run as many pro-abortion ads as possible. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds great. So, all right, let's get back to the Senate map here. There's a bunch of states that are Republican, a bunch of states that are Democrat. You have Senate races, but they're solidly in one form or another. I'm not going to go through all of those, right? The only things that are outstanding at this point that make a difference, Alaska, where there's a Republican primary, that happens next week uh, with uh, Chewbacca and sitting Senator Murkowski. Um, and then there is a New Hampshire, which does have... Wait, there's a there's a primary with Murkowski? Oh, yeah. Hmm. I know what your thought is on that. I'm yeah. refraining from, from speaking about it. So in the New Hampshire primary... This is, first of all, of course, Governor Sununu hasn't changed this primary. 
It is the most reckless thing of all time when you have two Democratic senators to make a September primary to try to challenge them. They have a year and a half to raise general election money, which they all have, right? And then the Republican gets three weeks. Right. Three weeks. So he decided not to help out the United States Senate. Honestly, based in Inu, who cares? And then Governors he, are kings. He was like, I, I, I make the rules. He's like, I am the law. Well, so Mason Inu doesn't care I, about the Senate. Probably the most cuck thing you've ever said <laughs> in this program. Sanu doesn't give a shit. Is, are you on his payroll now? Sort of. I, I don't think. I'm I, paying my big Sanu. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think it's going to go I mean, over too well is, with like, Republican pops, primary right? Like Sanu just runs off his father's name. So, Well, it's bad enough. But look, Maggie Hassan, who is up for election here, right. her favorability is horrible. Yeah. New Hampshire has turned really dark for Joe Biden and Democrats. Yeah. The chances of emerging with a very competitive race here are high. Now, they're going to get out, Republicans are going to get outspent by a landslide. We've sort of neglected this as a program. We haven't talked to many of the candidates in large part because of our anger uh, at Sununu coming on the program and then the next week announcing like, fuck everybody, I'm not going to. What a dick, dude. I know. I know. <laughs> and like, we're still holding some of that ill will but like, I will probably have one of these, a couple of these people on, so you get a flavor for who's running. I mean, I think the wildest thing about that is like you're trying to help this guy if if he actually cares about public service and wants to be an elected official. Like, you should run for senate, bro. You're not gonna be president. No, no. And if <laughs> anything <laughs> solidified it, now. yeah. If anything solidified it, was leaving his party out to dry on that situation. And by the way, doing nothing to try to find a replacement right. who could clear the field right. and win this race, right? right? Which is like the entire problem is like, I, look, at the end of the day, like if we want to win in places like New Hampshire or whatever, like you're not going to get a base conservative candidate everywhere in the country. I don't really care if, if you're a hardline conservative or a moderate or somewhere in between, but like be a person who helps the party. Do okay. something. You know what I mean? Do something. Well, well, he's the same how, guy here, challenged the congressional map. Here's a novel idea. Win. Well, how, 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 about, how about win an election? Yeah. You know, what I like, though, is, like, I love the Sununu delusion. Like, imagine waking up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you're like, the American people cry out for Sununu. Like, <laughs> I'm going to screw the party. I don't care about anybody else in the state. I don't care about helping elect any Republicans. I am convinced the American people want Sununu for president. Well, like, meanwhile, people are getting inundated with inflation and, and yeah, all, every like, single bad. They're like, this, the solution to all this, is the American people are crying out, Sununu is the only solution <laughs> to this. And like he's like, yes, I can do it. Like, con- <laughs> like, con- contrast him with Larry Hogan. And I mean, sh- I'm sure a lot of conservatives have complaints with Larry Hogan. But you know what Larry Hogan did? He delivered a map that has another competitive congressional yeah, he race. He did everything. Right. And cut taxes for and seven cut taxes. years. Yeah. Right. I know. It, listen, it is what it is. Let's move off of New Hampshire. That is in the sort of lean or likely D category, in large part because we don't have a nominee <laughs> at this point. Right? And, and you're 100% right. It is very key to point out that Dems love having like a September primary just to cripple Republicans. Especially and for him to be like, yeah, that's cool. It's an incumbent protection move. It is. You don't. If the later you have a primary, the more interest you have in protecting mm-hmm. the people who are incumbents, and that's what that is. Anyway, in that same category as New Hampshire is also Colorado. Remember, we had Joe O'Day on. Yeah, yeah. we did. So Joe O'Day against Michael Bennett. The Democrats spent seven million dollars trying to prevent Joe O'Day from becoming the nominee. What they did is run a whole bunch of ads, sort of portraying him as a moderate, which I'm sure they want back now that he won. Right. But it does make that race sort of competitive. 
Colorado is a state that ultimately I'm I'm guessing that the environment catches up at some point. It looks a little bit more blue than it actually is right now in terms of a right track, wrong track in their view of Biden. But if that comes around in a post-Labor Day environment, that's a real race. Yeah. Right. It is a real race. And one of the reasons is because of the incumbent. Michael Bennett, even though he ran for president, is not exactly a <laughs> dynamic figure. He's as close to a generic Democrat as you can get in a race. He is and vanilla pudding. He, absolutely. So you can you can beat a generic Democrat in this environment. And I think Joe O'Day is a very good candidate and capable of doing that. Yeah, totally. Um, and then Washington State is the other one that I would put in that category. That's remember Tiffany Smiley. We mm-hmm. had her on the program. She won her primary on Tuesday. That was a no-brainer. She was always going to win that primary. But the contrast that she paints between a fresh-faced sort of new idea Republican you know, I wouldn't say that she's moderate per se, but she's like certainly not some right wing zealot. Like she's definitely in tune fits, with the voters. She definitely fits the profile of a Washington state voter and a King County voter, which is like suburban Seattle that you need to win mm-hmm. versus somebody who's been there since the beginning of time. That's exactly. It's been 20 years since Patty Murray put on her tennis shoes. I think we can beat her. She is soft. She is is out of practice. She thinks it belongs to her, and I think Tiffany Smiley can sneak and up in, on her. And in a general sense, the buzz about like Smiley, I constantly hear from folks is just like there's 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 a lot of good stuff going on there. Like I only hear very positive things from everyone in the game I talk to. All the operas are like very very you know confident in Smiley to pull this off. Yeah, the, the, the challenge for her is to try to have something. She doesn't need to spend dollar for dollar, mm-hmm. but she's got to have some. She can't get four to one. And right. the abortion no, right. lobby is just absolutely on overdrive with Patty Murray, who is like, you know, one of the standard bearers of like full term abortion. Yeah. And Ugh. and th- so they've thrown in big. That is a race that if you can shrink the cash gap in a lot of ways, it's going to be worth watching all the way through. Right. Here's the other ones. So I want to bring this to people's attention. I don't think we have a problem here. But friend of the program, Mike Lee in Utah, solid conservative, constitutional conservative, uh, is facing that absolute clown. What's, what's I don't even know this. What is this McMuffin. guy? McMuffin. McMuffin. Yeah, McMuffin. Evan McMullen. McMuffin's the official Dem candidate. Right. Well, is he like, really? I think he's an independent. No, but they're but not. He, they're not. They're not fielding a candidate. On the he Democrat unified side. Dems yeah. and independents. Oh, cool. Fusion ticket. A fusion ticket. Cool. So I don't think we have a problem there. But, like, look, you can't take that kind of shit for granted. Mike Lee is a solid Republican. He needs to be reelected. And God forbid, God forbid you have anybody like Evan McMullen within a country mile of my beloved Senate. That guy is an absolute clown. Does McMuffin have a shot, dude? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't, I personally. can't let McMuffin, dude, McMuffin doesn't even pay his bills. Like, the dude still owes money from, like, when he's he presidential, for, yeah. Yeah. Evan McMuffin, you, never you, president. Know, you know the wildest, <laughs> the wildest thing about that smug is those vendors are Utah vendors. Yeah, like, <laughs> like these are people in Utah that he stiffed from the presidential campaign. He really can't be like I'm a job creator when he's like I owe people money <laughs> all over town. Dude's got to duck out of events. I mean, here's like, where's my money, here's, McMuffin? <laughs> <laughs> here's here's some here's some free free consulting advice from Mike Lee's team. Go ahead and find those vendors and get them to camera. Yeah, see if you can talk to some of them. Yeah. I guarantee they have an opinion about it. <laughs> um, so Wisconsin with Ron Johnson, we've had him on the program, obviously, a senator everybody knows well. 
I think pretty integral to the effort to unmask the Russiagate yeah, conspiracy. Yeah. Love Ron John for that. Like this guy stayed very focused on it. Now, because he was in the middle of that, he's at high target. Yeah, the Dems are going crazy. They're going crazy. They've unified the field. And Wisconsin's a tough state. They, it, it, Wisconsin is a t- always a tough state. It, I mean, for no matter what, it's a tough state. Now, they've unified behind this person named Mandela Barnes, who is a genuine radical. Uh-oh. Genuine radical. The contrast between Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes could not be more. I mean, this is... This is somebody who is not like further left than basically anybody who's running in a plain state at this point. I mean, I can't even believe that this is their candidate, but they've unified behind Mandela Barnes. So, look, Ron needs help. Mm -hmm. And he's doing a great job raising money. Ultimately, my money is heavy, heavy on Ron Johnson here. Yeah. Particularly with the environment. Yeah. But they're attacking the ever-living shit out of him. Yeah, my money's on Ron John, too. I mean, this is a Midwestern state that's gone red the last couple of cycles. And, and Ron John it has a manufacturing background that means a lot in a red state. It means a lot in a place like Wisconsin. And I think, I think Ron John is going to wipe the floor with Barnes. So my money's on him. So let's move to the great state of Ohio. Home state of John Ashbrook. Uh, like it's been bread and butter for Republicans in recent years. Um, certainly more red than it once was, but it is not an uncompetitive state, right? Mm-hmm. Democrats have won and plan on winning there. Yeah, right? they're, running, they're running that clown, Tim Ryan, who like, yes, he's a clown, but the guy's raising money. Raising money left and right, and he's like three to one on air over J.D. Vance, who we've also had in the program. a lot of spending. We had J.D. on very early, as you recall, mm-hmm. like, early, like before he even got into the race, talking about how he would run if he was, if he was in. So we were like ground floor with J.D., Clearly a, comp- a compelling candidate, clearly somebody who has the capacity of resonating deeply with rural parts of Ohio in addition to the suburbs. And I mean, the, the life story alone, like he wrote, he literally wrote the book on growing up in absolute poverty and focusing yourself and, and doing everything you can and making something of yourself. And that's just like such a compelling, I hope to God it's still like the American story and like the American dream that like it resonates with voters because that's a great story. They're doing a great job of trying to make him something he's not though, Mm. right? And part of the reason that they're doing that is there's a huge cash disparity. Yeah, Yeah. They're raising a lot at a candidate level. They're raising a lot at a committee level. They're pouring it into Ohio. Dems actually think that they can compete and win there. I saw this week One Nation, which is like the the nonprofit that sits on top of SLF, the Senate Republican super PAC, started running ads there. Um, You know, that tells me that there's a real race that we need to figure out. My money is heavily on JD. I know that as a candidate in a post-Labor Day environment, this dude can deliver, right? He's not the kind of guy that you are afraid to put out on the stump for fear that they just step all over their own dick. Like, I think he can actually deliver in a post-Labor Day environment, which is what you got to hope for, but you also need the resources to compete and win. For people in Ohio, if you haven't gotten involved, it was a divisive primary. If he wasn't your candidate, time to come together. Time to come yeah. together, get involved. That guy needs resources. He needs help. He needs all everything because there is no Republican Senate, I can guarantee you, without the state of Ohio. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and full disclosure, I've had a couple beers with J.D., Guy drinks butt heavies like me. Good guy. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. The idea of you drinking butt heavies is actually, I could see him drinking butt heavies. 
what, Mr. JD, Weller JD, Neat doesn't exactly uh, – well, never, never mind. J, JD, JD comes from Middletown, Ohio. Yeah. And Middletown is right down the road from a place where I grew up called Hamilton, Ohio. And Ohio has three major cities, uh, a couple others that would consider themselves major cities. But uh, it's predominantly uh, made up of towns like Middletown. And I think a lot of people in the state – like the idea of somebody from a town like where they're from representing them which hasn't happened the Senate. has not happened mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's time for something like that to happen and i think once jd raises the money he needs delivers that message and reminds people that he is their voice in the senate um i think i think he's going to get the votes totally i agree the other one's North Carolina, right? And and here's the thing. Ted Budd, who's also been on the program, mm-hmm. you'll notice a theme here. There is not a competitive primary anywhere in the country where the winner of that primary didn't show up on the Ruthless Variety program. That's right. So, look, that's just a data point for you to consider. Yep. Uh, anybody who didn't, yeah, they didn't make Should've. it. They didn't make it. So he shows up, Ted Budd, uh, runs a great campaign, wins a competitive primary there against a former governor, so it was no joke. North Carolina is a state that's always in that purple category, right? Democrats have sunk $200 million over the last two cycles to come up short. Remember kissing Cal Cunningham last mm-hmm, cycle? Mm-hmm. I think the program did a nice job on him, by the way. One, 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 one quick thing I want to bring up about uh, that primary. So I love Ted Budd, great candidate. I love the state of North Carolina, obviously. It's in my blood. Uh, former candidate, uh, uh, or former Governor McCroy, who was in that primary, Basically, the entire national Dem apparatus spent as much money as possible to get him kicked out because of the like so-called bathroom bill. Yeah, he was like, uh, "We do not want you know individuals who now identify as a woman to use the same restrooms as like you know little girls." Right. They got him kicked out over that. The he dude was, like, was an oracle because that was like six years ago, four or six years ago that he 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 was like, "I'm standing my ground on this." You know, we should have men use the men's room, women use the men, well, women's room. Seems like a very, you know, clear line in the sand. Well, nope. here's, here's the thing. You know, this is, this is a state that in um, years that aren't like this year could go either way. But the environment is with us. This is a state that trends red. This is a state that it wants to push back against what Biden is doing. And Ted Budd's a good candidate to capitalize on yes, that. Yes, he is. Here's the other data point on this. North Carolina, a very interesting sort of way to view this is a state that typically breaks with the environment very late, mm-hmm. very late. Both in 2020 and in 2018, you saw races that were neck and neck into the month of October until the environment caught up one way or another and the Republican obviously figured out how to win. And also like something important to consider with North Carolina is they're suffering. So th- kind of like the same problem with Texas where especially during COVID, you had all these blue state people move somewhere that they were like, well, you know, this is a far better environment. The crime is less. The taxation is like not out of control. I'm going to move from New York to North Carolina. And try to ruin it. And then they're (laughs) voting for the same shit that like destroyed wherever they're coming from. But like Texas has a population large enough to like more absorb that. You've seen a situation where like North Carolina now has a Democrat governor, man. It's a red state. 
and they have a Democrat governor. And this is the problem: is you you've got all these like liberals research who, triangle. Yeah, they've they've shown up over the past couple of years. You ask them whether they like Eastern or Western barbecue, and they have no idea what you're talking about. And they're voting. They grill blue. a burger like Cal Cunningham. Remember that he had a gas I grill. That. Yeah. He's like, I love barbecue. I'm doing barbecue. Craft gas grill on his back porch. That's the that's what the an problem. asshole. That's the problem. Well, is you get those clowns in there, and then you've got a lot of these voters now who have been in North Carolina for all of 10 minutes because they rolled over from a blue state and they're going to vote Dem. In addition to everything else that Joe Biden is doing to ruin the economy all over the country, he is trying to crush tobacco. And tobacco means an awful lot in North Carolina. It's sort of like coal. We worked in Kentucky a lot. Coal is cultural in Kentucky. In North Carolina, tobacco is cultural. You have a lot of tobacco farmers. You have a lot of people whose aunts and uncles worked at tobacco companies. Mm Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden is trying to ruin the industry, and I, I just don't think people are going to stand for it. I think they're. Going I to hope to God they don't. I think that's right. The last data point on that: Democrats have been absolutely snake bitten on this. I mentioned that they spent two hundred million dollars over two cycles on it. I remember as a Republican going into certain states, spending a lot of money and coming up short two cycles in a row. Uh, you get a little hesitant that time. So I'm not counting on it. I'm just saying I think a modest investment in North Carolina gets us to where we're going. I agree. Because I think Democrats, as much as they want North Carolina, I that is a awfully big bite to chew. You know, I, I think that's dead on. We, Ted Budd is a strong candidate. We give him a little bit of a push. He's going to steamroll. Agreed. Uh, Florida. So I know uh, some of the predilections here of the Variety program (laughs) when it comes to Marco Rubio. I happen to be a fan. Senator Rubio uh, is up for re-election and is in a pretty dominant spot. But but his opponent has probably raised more money than any challenger in the country. Uh, Spent a ton of money. They obviously see this as something that they can try to pick off. I don't know if the National Democrats are coming into it because it's Florida, right? Again, same rule applies for North Carolina into Florida. What was the guy with the boat? What cocktails was the Yacht. Yeah, Cocktails the Yacht. I remember Murphy. The, Murphy. Yeah, Patrick, Patrick Murphy. Murphy ran against Rubio in, what was it, 2016? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That's a perfect example. He sunk $100 million into that asshole, and it turns out his yacht was like more omnipresent than he was as a candidate. And, uh, and he came up short. My guess is that something similar happens in Florida, but don't keep your eye off it. Rubio, right? so, so we've had we've had DeSantis on the show. We've had Rick Scott on the show. Rubio's the only statewide who hasn't rolled up, huh? Well, I don't know that it's... I think it's you. Hmm. I think it's you. I, I, I haven't <laughs> said no. I, I, come on, little Marco. I'm, Mar- absolutely <laughs> sh- I'm absolutely sure that Marco would come on uh, I'm. I'm not. I doubt he would, dude. I hope he would come listen, on and just I don't, ro- listen, roast you. I hope I, he would roast you. I don't. Oh, he could roast try. He, he could ro- try. He could try, bro. I don't want any damn elected. Believe me. <laughs> the way this guy has found a year to be in cycle, well, we need every Republican because, like Joe Biden and the Democrats, are destroying this country. But the way he's in cycle now, we handcuffed. It hurts so much. We handcuffed him. <laughs> Well, Marco, uh, we're all for him right now. Uh, that's a state to keep an eye on. Here is kind of, in my view, where the majority is made or lost, right? Nevada, we mentioned Arizona, mm-hmm. Georgia, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. right? We have to win the states that we were talking about with Missouri and Wisconsin and Ohio and North Carolina. No question about it. But there are Dem incumbents in Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania is a Republican-held seat with Pat Toomey. Dr. Oz is now on the ticket. They're throwing everything they can at it. They really are. This is where the majority is won or lost. Nevada, Adam Laxalt, 
Catherine Cortez Masto. Contrast is very incredibly clear. But you have the same sort of confluence of issues between Mark Kelly and Catherine Cortez Masto in a lot of different ways. They both are abject partisan liberal progressive Democrats. Completely out of step. Completely out of step with the voters there. And they've done absolutely everything the Biden administration has asked. Like we said, nobody's asking how they'll vote on this piece of shit tax bill. None of them. Yep. That's because Masto's career strategy has been to make herself a wallflower in Democrat politics. Yeah. And if the wave goes her way, then she wins. The bad news for her is when the wave doesn't go her way, she loses. Mm -hmm. She looks like a generic Democrat, and that is a very bad thing to be in this cycle. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if anybody's paid any close attention to what the Hispanic vote is doing in the state of Nevada, there was a poll just a couple months ago that showed Laxalt and Masto at parity among Latino yeah, voters. Yeah, 45 Let's apiece. Go. And so this that is that is a red alert. And do you know why? Do you know why they're a parody? It's because Latino voters are fed up with this economy because they can't afford groceries. They can't afford gas. And oh by the way, in Nevada, that's a state where you drive to work. There's no subway to take you 45 minutes across it. You you literally drive to work every day. And so these people are like Bring me change. I want something different than what Cortez Masto is doing, which is voting with Biden 95% of the time. Totally. I think it was Greg Price who had this great tweet where it was like, if the Republican Party can trade going for the like D3 vote to gain Latino voters, I'll take that all day, any day of the week. Oh, my God. And that is what you're seeing is like you've got the D3s, as as esteemed guest Katie Pavlich pointed out, the D3s, the, the deranged, woke white women, who are basically just like, I don't care about the economy. I don't care that Americans are suffering. <laughs> I have you know, DoorDash. My Instagram story is about, like, in this house, we vote for communists. So, like, <laughs> I've got to vote, you know, blue no matter who. If you listen to these Latino voters, these are th- some of them voted for Obama. Mm-hmm. Some of them voted for Hillary. This time, they're voting for Adam Laxalt. That's right. Yeah, I think that's 100% right. A couple of things about the atmospherics of Nevada. A lot of talk in the 2020 election about what their election changes were. Valid, valid criticism. So Democrats unilaterally had an auto-enroll system where they sent out ballots to unclean lists, right? So their Secretary of State list of registered voters had been years old, right? And this they is sent, unreal. They Dude, sent out so, ballots. Uh. Some houses getting three or four different ballots of people who moved. It's a naturally transient city because of the, the Las Vegas. I'm talking about mm-hmm. because of the service industry, right? right. People move in, mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. move out. So you can see where this could become a problem, right? But in addition to that, they also unilaterally, without a single Republican vote, created ballot harvesting. So you mail out all of these ballots and then you go and collect them, right? In in predominantly Democratic-based precincts. You can see where this would become a problem. So some of the conversations that you're having in some states about like stop the steal or whatever are absolutely fucking ridiculous. It actually wasn't in Nevada. In Nevada, it was a very, very real situation. And I don't think you'll ever get to a definitive answer about what difference all of that made. But all those laws are still in the books, which is a problem for Republicans, right? The go- I mean, like, it's just, it, it, it seems so enough, like, for Democrats to claim they're for democracy. And then to have, what is, let me tell you folks, you know, I have previous work experience dealing with voter lists and such. And the folk, like, you had to show up to the Board of Elections with a certificate, a death certificate for a family member to get them to stop sending stuff. 
Yeah, it's like just... if you have a, 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 a imagine... grandfather or a great grandfather who's on a permanently you know disabled list that they send ballots to because they you know physically can't leave the house. You have to show up with a death certificate. So it's like, oh, you know, the funeral is awful. Everyone's in a terrible mood. Let's get the death certificate. Let's go to the Board of Elections. It's That's al- the only way they're going to stop sending ballots. It's also auto-enroll. Yeah. Oh. Auto-enroll. So Unreal. if you move in, you need a driver's license. You're auto-enrolled as a registered to vote. They send you a ballot no matter what. And you're, you could not even live there. And during the pandemic, that was a huge problem because their jobs didn't exist. Yeah. Right, they they couldn't go to work, and so they left. Anyway, that stuff is still on the books. It's problematic. Yeah. On the plus side, there's no state in the union that has changed its registration more than Nevada. Yeah, there are many, many more Democrats who've become Republicans than Republicans have become Democrats. That's exactly right. And they have this huge independent voting block there because they auto enroll and people just check independent because yeah. you know like, who knows what kind of list you show up on yeah. with a state that's all democratic if you check the republican box yeah. right i can understand how some people are skeptical that is a new voting block that is very very inclined to support a republican that perhaps didn't in 2020 2018 2016 2014 when we've had these problems in Nevada 2014 notwithstanding that's when Adam Laxalt won his first AG race anyway I think we it's primed to win. We should probably go to Georgia. Herschel Walker. I love Herschel so much. I know you do. Huge Herschel Walker fan. I know you do. And the media has been all over Herschel Walker, yeah. right? Because he doesn't sound like a politician. He sounds like a guy who's like me and you, sort of talking through a variety of issues and and try and relating to the people he's talking to. Well, I, have, that, I have a hard time thinking the media would be as critical of Herschel Walker, a person who, you know, doesn't sound like a politician, is a successful, you know, black American. If he had a D next to his name, I don't think the same that criticism is also, would they, be they, No, no, no. They would, they would emphasize the authenticity of right. his message. And I think th- it cannot be overstated. Like, I've, I put that meme out there where, like, whenever you have a black conservative, Democrats go from, like, Great Gatsby Leonardo DiCaprio to, like, Django Unchained right. Leonardo DiCaprio. That dipshit that dip from MSNBC called him a Negro. Straight up. Are you kidding me? No, Called him a Negro. Eli oh, Mistal That is whatever. a quote. That is a quote. Who, like, that guy, like, honestly, like, I'm not a doctor. I, I think you should see a doctor about the kind of shit that he says. And MSNBC puts this guy on loop. And they run with this kind of message. Like, what a horrible, disgusting thing to say. Yeah. What a horrible, disgusting thing to say about someone who's worked so hard and made something of themselves. Well, let me tell you what the bottom line is. And Georgia is at the epicenter of this, right? Georgia actually determined not only who was president of the United States, Mm -hmm. but who controlled Congress. Yes. They were the one state in the union in 2020 that delivered two Democratic senators and a president of the United States in a red state. If any state in this union has buyer's remorse, it is Georgia. If you like inflation... If you like a disaster in Afghanistan, if you're okay with open borders, and if you're down with like everything that's happening in this country right now, then you're right. You made a nice vote. But 70% of Georgia thinks that was a bad decision. And the thing is, is that yet again, you have a situation where the media is running cover for a candidate who is far out of step with the voters. Like Raphael Warnock is... I mean, he, he, he's literally a Castro supporter. Literally. There's photos that have been put out of him yeah, like no, celebrating right. Castro. 
that's not Georgia values at all. And 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 there's there's video of him. What was it? Uh, he like hit his wife with a car. There's ran, police. Ran, yeah, no. She says she, that she, through tears that he ran over. There's her foot police with his, cam with his, video of this. With his Tesla. So it was a Tesla. <laughs> so like, oh, oh my god, of course it was. <laughs> oh, of course it was. This is why Dems love him. I mean, They're like you got to men- not to mention the 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 kids camp up in New England. That, that yeah, where horrific things occurred. I can't believe people tried to watch. brush that under the rug. And the thing is that like. I guarantee a lot of our listeners, even our listeners, have not heard about any of this. Well, they because have the they media to us. Every, yeah, hopefully, like, you should listen to every episode of ours. <laughs> hopefully they've heard this, but, like, the fact that the media covers this up, like, imagine if Herschel Walker did a tenth of any of this. Totally. So, Alana Goodman with the Washington Free Beacon has done a lot of reporting on Warnock, and I just encourage uh, folks listening here to go check her work out. She, she she does just really, really good work. Maybe we should bring her on the show at yeah. some point. And, and if you have it. folks in Georgia, let them know, because Warnock is, I mean, he's a, he's a dangerous guy. Like, he has proven to be dangerous. There's police body cam footage of him being a dangerous dude hitting people with Teslas. But if you look at the environment in Georgia, Brian Kemp is winning by eight points. So, so this is what the point, and I'm glad you brought this up, because we did the atmospherics of these other states the atmospherics of georgia are in part but there were referendum on the entire country two years ago and that's a buyer's remorse situation but second is brian kemp Mm -hmm. kemp ran and continues to run the most effective republican campaign in the country he has got an army of people that are working overtime down there i have absolutely no doubt in my mind that every single registered Republican who has the capability of voting is going to go out and vote, which... That's bad news for Democrats. That is very bad news for Democrats. Herschel is a beneficiary of some of that. He's going to get attacked left and right. You also have Stacey Abrams, who's like, I mean, where do we start? Yeah. Where do we start? Uh, you know, she's in Last the Hamptons. Last year's Major League Baseball All-Star Game is a good place to start. So I think I think Brian Schwartz at CNBC reported she's going to be in the Hamptons like this weekend. Oh, for in her natural, in her yeah. natural environment, right? Yeah. Being like, so I want to talk about equity, folks. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love Southampton. I just, I just <laughs> Hello, Southampton. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's it's a really important state. It's going to come down. The last one we have to hit is Pennsylvania. Doctor Oz won it, probably the most aggressive primary in yeah. the Blood entire. Bath. Bloodbath primary. He's running against Dave McCormick, who ran a hell of a race, and he beat the shit out of Oz, right? He since endorsed him right away, did the gentleman thing. That's right. Figured out how to rally the troops behind, but it, it does leave a mark, yeah. right? And so there is some consolidation that needs to happen there. I think that naturally comes in a post-Labor Day environment. Democrats, look, you've heard of Fetterman. Many people are saying the guy is actually dead and just like, being, we can have Bernie's. <laughs> well, this is a, you know... This is a joke. No, so, but many people are saying he's, a, you so know, he's on, not doing interviews. The guy can't move. For those of you who haven't followed it closely, unfortunately, he suffered a stroke before the primary, mm-hmm. right? It was a very, very... He was in the hospital for like a very long time. Very serious medical condition, and it honestly continues to be. And what's important is he stated he was not taking the medication his doctor told him to take so he would not suffer such an episode. He refused to take it, and he did not disclose to the public when he was, what, is he lieutenant governor? Right? Yep. He did not disclose that information to the public, which, like, I think you're legally obligated to do so. Yeah, well, I mean, either way, he's not returned to the campaign trail. What he's getting away with in the in the national media and the Pennsylvania media is, like, very small snippets of YouTube clips of him saying, like, four words at a time, and they call it campaigning. Like, a well, couple so weeks ago. It's the Biden basement this, strategy. Exactly. I th- yeah. Pennsylvania, That's what he's doing. Pennsylvania has seen this before, and it got them 9% inflation with Joe Biden. There you go. Here's here's my thought on Fetterman. 
uh, separately from the health issues and everything else. Uh, Democrats and their allies in the liberal media claim that Fetterman is an unconventional candidate who can win in western Pennsylvania. People in western Pennsylvania do not want what a Democrat is selling. So what Fetterman has to do is succeed in the collar counties around Philadelphia. The collar counties around Philadelphia have Chamber of Commerce-like voters who picked people like Arlen Specter and then Pat Toomey and then Joe Biden. The people who are voting for those three people are not interested in what John Fetterman is selling. These are people who are looking for a conventional leader, somebody a little bit more like He's Dr. Ultimately, Ross. it's worth noting that he won that primary against Connor Lamb because he was significantly more progressive. Mm-hmm. He was. This He's is, a socialist. This is the most a Bernie Sanders style socialist. This is the most leftist candidate that's ever run for office in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I I, I would be a lot I think more that concerned right now. He's the most right leftist now. that's ever gotten the party nomination to run the Senate. I'd be a lot more right. Con- Pretty close. I, mean, I, I think he might be. Other than Bernie. Yeah, other than Bernie. <laughs> yeah, I'd be a wow. lot, lot more. If cons- it's a toss up between him and Bernie, who's further to the left? We'd be a lot more concerned if it was Connor Lamb we were facing. There was 100%. a percent. Uh, uh, speaking of Philadelphia, there was a great story that. Uh, that came out here from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, this is John Fetterman, socialist who wants to spend all of our money to remake society. Here's the headline. John Fetterman's parents gave him money into his 40s. What? Dude. <laughs> Wait, like, like they shared No wonder he likes spending other people's money. Yeah, it's, oh. it, it, it's muscle been, memory. Been living on daddy's doll his whole life. Now he's going to run ours. And I got to say this story. So I was told by somebody, I can't give their name in the know. A couple weeks back, uh, Fetterman was only agreeing to do interviews off camera that had to be written only, and they had to be done while he was sitting shotgun in a car, that he would roll down the window, journal gets like three questions, and the journals couldn't mention that like he was sitting in a car writing shotgun only. And I got a photograph of this that was told, oh, don't, don't, don't publish this because it'll give away that I was there. That's how rough a state this guy is in. He's already lied to voters. He's already lied to the people of Pennsylvania about his condition and hidden it. And, like, the media covering up for him and Dude. agreeing to being like, yeah, we're, we'll agree. We won't make you look bad, even though, like, you're, like, sitting in a hearse riding shotgun. Like, what, makes sense. What you've just described is everything that's wrong with media bias. I mean, no Republican candidate ever could have ever can you imagine dude can you imagine no No. let me let me read a little bit more from this philadelphia inquirer (laughs) story because it's absolutely incredible please do public records show and fetterman has openly acknowledged that for the long stretch lasting well into his 40s his main source of income came from his parents who gave him and him and his family fifty four thousand dollars in 2015 alone what this this is the best part here that's that's not that's not eating out money no no. that's not sharing a verizon family plan he was not on the verizon family plan bro he's an adult man did he pay tax on that Dude, dude it gets even worse for him here he lived in an industrial-style loft he purchased from his sister for one dollar. What? <laughs> after, wait, are you serious? After, after, after she paid seventy thousand dollars for it six years earlier. Oh, are my you serious? Yeah. What year was this? He bought that. Does it, say? Uh, it doesn't say the year Bro, that he uh, bought it for a dollar. I'm assuming it was a, a rather relaxed so transaction. I, <laughs> <laughs> He's dig, thing, digging, digging around in the couch cushions to buy a loft. This is this, this guy. 
fucking walks around cosplaying as some blue collar tough it. guy, <laughs> and he's living on the dole of daddy and and getting an industrial loft from his sister for a dollar. This guy's uh, uh, a complete what's fucking that, phony. What's that you say, sis? One dollar? Well, dad gave me fifty four thousand, so I should be able to come up with it. I, I think it's important that that the voters in Pennsylvania know that this guy who's like like you said, he's cosplaying, wearing a Carhartt, being like, I'm a I'm a real tough this guy. guy. Sucks, dude. What he, a fucking phony. Well, 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 you're like suffering and paying for groceries and gas. This guy got a one dollar house and fifty four k from and, daddy. And just because he looks like shit, run over six times, people think, oh, he must be authentic. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a break. No, honestly, he's a, he's a Democrat, and so the press is like, oh, well, this guy must be authentic. It, it, like. He gets such a free pass. Listen, if I had a one dollar house and I got fifty dollar band or fifty bands a year for just chilling, I'd look wonderful. Like he's made a lot of poor decisions <laughs> that he's ended up in this situation when he got his house for one dollar. My God, if you are in living in Pennsylvania and listening to this right now, and anyone in your family is considering voting for this asshole, clear your schedule. Seriously, clear your schedule. <laughs> clear your schedule and start reading them. Clips. Has he has he said any statements about like the cost of housing? Oh, I'm sure. I would love for him to have a statement about how expensive the cost of housing is. Listen, I paid a dollar for my house. <laughs> I know the pain you feel. <laughs> Holy shit. I didn't know that. Like he's buying a Diet Coke. Yeah. <laughs> I had to put four quarters of the machine in my house popped out. <laughs> <laughs> what a complete clown. Anyway, that's our, our wrap up on the Senate. You all should take a look at that. We're going to keep on that. We'll, we'll highlight a lot more of this stuff as it comes up. But we wanted to give you an overview of where we're at at this point in the cycle. A couple of things real quick before we get to the game today. Mm-hmm. Um, we always said that we would do nothing but monkeys when Every monkeys time. are And this are is available. very, very important news because clearly the Japanese police are ruthless listeners. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So the Japanese police have struck back, yes. right? And I don't even know what this publication, SCMP, I don't even know what that is. It's it's something that's like terrifically McDaniel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the guy, he, any news that exists, he monitors. He, he's on it. Is it. I think it's the South China Morning Post, if I remember correctly. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. I'm way too online, so I know about the South My China God. Morning Post. <laughs> Generally speaking, I trust nothing out of China, but because of McDaniel, I will read it. Um, officials in Japan have put down a monkey that they say was part of a gang of macaques terrorizing the city of Yamaguchi for weeks, according to reports. Finally. The Japanese macaque. <laughs> which, oh, Holmes really loves that part. Which is sometimes referred to as a snow monkey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's go with snow monkey. Bro, is it really? Because I've seen those videos of like, is this is th- those monkeys that chill in like the saunas? Like they find the hot springs? Is this those Japanese monkeys? I don't know. It's a formidable macaque. I know that. It, it, it was euthanized. You got to wave about macaque, bro. Like, <laughs> they're out of control. Once you start waving macaques around, it's a real problem. Uh, oh, my God. It was God. euthanized on Tuesday after specially commissioned hunters used a tranquilizer gun to sedate it. Here's Wait, the it's thing. Like a, Wait, here's, yeah, the two-step process is way too much. You Sedate it, then euthanize Just shoot it. Just shoot the. You can do it in one step. What about the, what about the banana pool? Well, the banana pool would be a good option. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna write into so the now city they, leaders. Now they're playing for keeps. Like I, I, you know, I congratulate them because here's the thing: is like you know, all of us have seen Planet of the Apes. The thing is, is we don't take them seriously. That's what happens, folks. I, I, all of a sudden, you're looking at the Statue of Liberty, and everything's gone to shit. You got to take the threat seriously. They're playing the keeps. You got to kill them. I very much look forward to Ash Brooks' letter to the editor of the South <laughs> South China Morning Post. Please get it published. Banana Letter from John Ashbrook. I have the plan. (laughs) Japanese police, please make the banana pools. 
Because like now they're now they've crossed the Rubicon. They're willing to kill the yeah. monkeys, Ashbrook's, and you have to. You got to kill them. Ashbrook's like the the scientist in the disaster movie. He comes in in the white <laughs> lab coat, <laughs> takes off his glasses, and he's like, "Ladies and gentlemen." I have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> like you can't talk about killing monkeys. This it, is the war room. It would absolutely work. And let me just describe to the listeners how this would work in case you haven't heard previous episodes. But what you do is you take an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Yeah. You fill it with water. And then on top of the water, you float bananas as far as the eye can see. And so the monkeys go into the pool thinking they're getting a banana, but they slip under the water and they drown. So here's the thing. It's like if it's... Guaranteed if it's, to work. If it's like your standard monkey, I, I think it works. But if it's the like hot springs monkeys that they have in Japan... I don't know, man. I think they're at home in water. Because clearly, if they're chilling in hot springs, they're cool with that. Mm. I just applaud the Japanese police for finally using lethal force. But I agree. It's like it, it, you're going through too many steps when you're like, not only like tranquilize them. Now you've got a dude who's got to be like, all right, you're the you're the you're the executioner. You're the well, monkey you also, executioner. You also wonder. <laughs> you wonder how many. That's of you that's a wild resume item. Monkey executioner. <laughs> Six months. <laughs> you wonder how many Six. of the authorities have experience with macaque. <laughs> Holmes can't help himself. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Also, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't read. This is not intended for for our listeners to hear. McDaniel puts this great note. There's never been a happy monkey story. From the junkie monkey <laughs> to dog killing monkeys to machete monkey and now the macaque raiders, these violent delights have violent ends. Sean McDaniel, we will always tell every violent monkey story. Yeah, I'm sorry. The people deserve the truth. I'm sorry. It's just a point of disagreement. We'll have to move on. We've got. All right. Can we, we, can we just 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 one of the lines from the story, just so people know, we're not we're not just talking about indiscriminately going out and shooting uh, monkeys. Um, in one attack, a four-year-old child was targeted by a monkey on the grounds of a Yamaguchi kindergarten. They're 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 targeting wow. kids. These they're just monkeys like the mo- are targeting. They're like children. the modern Democrat Party. They're going after the kids. <laughs> they what are. the hell is wrong with these monkeys? I don't know what's wrong with them. And I, I, so I want to see footage of this too. Is so I think the reason that they're using tranquilizer darts is because you don't want to use live rounds like if it's in the cities, right? Like if you're like in a shopping district or something, you're trying to fire live rounds when there's the office building and shit, whatever, you know. If you're tranquilizing them and then executioning them, I mean, yes, there's no other choice. But I, I'm not trying to be the like guy who's giving a lethal injection to monkeys all day, right? Like oh. in the back of the van with all these sleeping monkeys. All right, put them down, buddy. <laughs> Tough gig. Tough uh, gig. Unless you like handling macaque. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are there are pastors that listen to this show. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just too good. It's just too. I will listen. I, let me liberate you for one moment. We have a story that we'll probably get to on Tuesday. That's about penis. That oh, we'll leave out. God. We'll leave out of this. One. <laughs> okay. We'll leave out of this. We gotta one. save that one. Let's play a game. Well, it's Thursday, and that can only mean one thing: King of the Hill. It does mean King of the Hill. Um, I'm there, so excited. Jen Rubin, reigning champ. No, nope. Let's fucking get it. <clears throat> there's let's a piece, go. There's a piece of business before the court. Okay. Wait, I, so I, here's the thing. is, So you played an illegal tweet that was out of the date okay, range. Okay, wow. And I, I, I pointed that out last week, and I was like, you know what? It's fine. If you want to play out of date you know, tweets, yeah, you've done it before. But I was like, listen, Jen Rubin is the truth. Let's roll with it. So the council brings up a good point. Okay. Which I'm willing to concede. We were going to play the game for Tuesday's episode of last week, and when I brought the tweets forward, uh-huh. uh, there was one that was out of date. I played it. It was wrong to play it. I should have lost. Okay. However, if you recall at the beginning of the episode, I filed a formal inquiry, and the formal inquiry 
before the game was that Smug was violating the rules by playing a competitor who had last played in King of the Hill mm-hmm. and lost and did not actually execute the one-week cool-off So, period. So for folks who are strict constitutionists, as I hope we all are, the rule is you cannot play a champion in a subsequent week. It had not been a subsequent week. It had been, what, yeah, we had four him, weeks? Yeah, we hadn't played the game so, in, a, in a number of it's weeks. It's two times in a row. <clears throat> Everyone knows that. We've done week so layoffs before. I didn't play before. in a subsequent week. And also, no. It's it, listen. The, do you think we would be hearing anything about like from the rules committee if Holmes <laughs> won that one with his illegal tweet? We no, because you ha- you actually vacated a win from That's not, me. It's not vacated because I violated the rules and I conceded that. I will concede that. What happened was you violated the rules flagrantly because and it wasn't a violation. And not, no, and knowingly and flagrantly. <laughs> because I filed a formal inquiry at the beginning saying the last time that we had played, Jen Rubin had lost to Matthew Dowd. In the next game, you again played Jennifer Rubin. <clears throat> you did it knowingly. You did it after being informed of the rule, I, and, you, I, and you still so, tried so, to execute. So I was informed of the rule, and the rule being that you can't play the champ in the subsequent week, given it was a month, and 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 the people, the, you know, the people deserve to have the best. And I gave them the best. Well, the, and I stayed within the rules. You broke the rules. But here's the thing is, I'm not being like, Holmes shouldn't be allowed to play this week because he broke the rules. I'm like, let's play King of the Hill. So I think I think Smug was in violation of the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Hmm. In that when the game was, was originally devised, it was a weekly game. And we didn't play it weekly. I have a proposition for you. Okay. That I think would concede on my part. Yes. Uh, but I think would offer a solution going forward. Yes. I believe we should redo the game. Let me go to my chambers. I have come to a decision. I think that is the best solution. I think we vacate last week's King of the Hill. It should be vacated. It should exist, right? Oh, well, you're the judge. Your call. Wow. Questioning right off. The I bat. wasn't. I wasn't. But like, I, it, it, I, I love when T Rex said that. We, so, so T Rex uh, maintains the official count, the official record, and I've got one game up on Holmes. We are tied up. It's I'm like declaring. I am declaring last week a mistrial. Yeah. So it's forty nine. Forty nine. This is it. And 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 we are going to replay. Okay. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. So that's I'm fair. Comfortable Does that work? That's fair. Hundred percent fair. Just a point of clarification. Dowd is the current champion. Wait, you're calling Yeah, because you revert right? back yes. to the last okay. game. Reverts back. Okay. Got it. And I think that means we should go ringside. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Once again, it's time for King of the Hill. And today's rematch for the ages. In the blue corner, fighting out of the Washington Post, Jennifer Brainworms Rubin. And now, in the red corner, fighting from his own Twitter account, Matthew Mail Pattern Dowd. Well, that was great. That Dude, was great. Really put his back into that. Really did. Really you know, did. Absolute professional. So uh, I will go first as I, as the reigning champion. Yes. Such a mistake, but hey, if you want, I got nothing but nukes. Well, I'm just playing by the rules. Yeah. Well, clearly not. But hey, let's go. Let's go. This is for the championship, and I'm ready to roll. 
I'm, you're going to get blown out. Probably swept. Dude, this is not going to be close. Probably swept. Matthew Dowd. As I said at the time, too many in the news media were wrong about Biden's withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Biden made a right decision, and it was managed incredibly well. Dude, really? That's and we are still able to conduct operations against terrorists without having troops there. Okay, that's really what you Thirteen Marines died. Died. It was managed incredibly well. Dude, this isn't... This Dude, isn't you can't... I understand, Spin. I'm, I'm going to be nice I and not ask Spin. you the date on that tweet. Maybe he dropped that shit Two a month ago. ago. So here's the thing is... So that's a very microwaved tw- uh, like take. <laughs> like oh, that is unbelievable. Oh yes, Biden is good. Here, here's here, here here's Jen Rubin. Spin has reached a, a contemptible level. So this is Jen Rubin. I think that you know the judge actually. I appreciate this it. This is Jen Rubin a day ago, uh, about the mansion tax hike. This is a really strong bill, even if it doesn't do much about inflation. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a take. The Inflation Reduction Act. This is a strong bill, even if it doesn't do much against inflation. I do, <laughs> I do appreciate that she gives away the game immediately. Hundred well, percent. But, but it's the shows- worms don't let her lie. She has no motor functions. The brains worms have eaten every part, like the front cortex, all of it. No, it's She's not now a full just like, worm though, because she actually this doesn't is a strong carry bill, the democratic talking point. Even if it doesn't do much about inflation, it's it's next level. That is next <laughs> it's level. Incredible, dude. It's great. Let me just reread you one line, bro. She brought a nuke to a knife fight. Biden made the right decision, and it was managed incredibly yeah. well. Yes, fourteen American had- Marines lost their lives, and countless Americans were stuck. In Afghanistan, where people who were former military had to actually go in and conduct operations to remove Americans and Afghani assets in the country. Yeah. And this guy says that Biden managed so, that incredibly So here's the thing. Well. That's yes, unbelievable. Yes, yes, yes. President Biden should be held culpable for the 13 service members that he had killed from his botched withdrawal. However, is the take that, like, actually Biden is good any different than any CNN contributor? No. No one out there in the nobody. game is saying, this is a really strong bill, even if it doesn't do much about inflation. There is nobody. That's on, such a wild if take. If you were to ask the shit press secretary that the White House has right now whether Afghanistan withdrawal was managed really well— she would not agree to that. She would say, let me circle back, bro. <laughs> she would not. She would not. Even Corinne. Nobody has made that whatever name is. Bro, this is a really strong bill, even if it doesn't do much about inflation. <laughs> well, what's the bill for? It's the Inflation Reduction Act. It's yes. just, and now it's just like a random bill of shit. This is, this is a tough, <laughs> this is a tough one. And, 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 and both councils are rather animated. I think, yeah. you know, the whole kerfluffle with last week has really brought a new sense of juice to the game, which I really appreciate. Um, I think the difference here, uh, Smug has brought me brainworms, a very dumb take where she gives the game away. And given that she is, you know, a columnist at the Washington Post, she's the conservative. Her, her job is to carry water. She's doing the one thing that she can't do, yeah, which is give up the game she's so out and of hurt control. the Democrat Party, which I love. I do, however, feel like the point that Holmes made is very compelling for one reason. And that is he didn't have to do that. Like it's shameless versus idiotic here in these two tweets. He didn't have to add in was managed very well. He could say, we got the terrorist, you know, that is great news. And it's proof that the withdrawal was good. He could have said that with a straight face and it would have been a bad tweet, but it wouldn't have been terrible. Man, the managed well component 
knocks it up a level higher than Ruben's dumb take for that reason. Dowd wins round one. <laughs> I think it, that one was that was. Thank you for the decision. I literally was aghast. Okay, so so you picked up in in your wisdom a theme, giving the game away. That's the theme this for is, Ruben. So this is round two. That this is round two. Uh, this is from five days ago because I like to, you know, stay within the range. Yeah, he's still on that. Jen Rubin, this is this is such an insane fucking thing. She says she gives the game away, and this is all lowercase. So it's just like you know, like if if you're uni- <laughs> like if you're a serial killer and writing your like manifesto, it's all lowercase. This is all lowercase. Every single letter lowercase. Insane people, get out and vote. Quote, D's and women, expect young women are particularly uncertain they will vote. Stop whining about asking to, quote, vote harder. Damn right. Vote. If D's keep the House, add a couple senators, they can codify Roe. And I want to submit to the judge and jury. I got to see the evidence here. The lowercase manifesto. <laughs> She's like, Listen. At this point, the Democrat Party is basically a coalition of insane people. <laughs> insane people. Period. <laughs> so I wonder, is she calling? First of all, she has changed. This is like brainworm joker fight. Like <laughs> she has. Jen Rubin has evolved. So she she used to be, um, you know, Jennifer pro democracy Rubin. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yep. Now she's Jennifer quote pro privacy. Abortion. <laughs> Who is she calling insane people? The, the the voters, the Dems that they need. It She's is like, my fellow insane people. What's, the worms are now writing the manifesto. What is weird? What is weird is it's lowercase, but it also contains a ton of punctuation. Tons. It's like she tried and didn't try at the same time. And like she had to tell her like little iPhone, like <laughs> I, I hit a period. I'm about to start a sentence. You're trying to get me to capitalize. No. <laughs> it's so good. The worms demand all lowercase in the manifesto. Oh, that's that's good. And now I you, I appreciate the evidence. You'll notice that I had the courtesy to allow counsel to present his evidence without talking over top of it. Yeah. That's been noted. In large part because I'm so confident about what I've got here. Okay. This is Matthew Dowd from yesterday. Kansas results on reproductive freedom vote confirms what I've been saying. This election is going to be far deeper issues than inflation. Voters understand freedom and democracy is at stake. Also, new national poll out today shows Dems with a six-point generic ballot lead. <laughs> That's all you got, bro? Really? Dude, it's- dude he, this guy's claiming that this election is going to be on reproductive freedom, as he calls it, abortion. Yes. That that the majorities in the House and the Senate are going to be about abortion, not inflation. <laughs> I mean, just think about, think about like the unbelievable nature of that claim. Right. Oh, but, and this is a Republican, by the way. This is the guy who this claimed a, to be a Republican. Not only a Republican, a campaign strategist. <laughs> a guy who, who should ostensibly have expertise on how elections are won. Kansas shows it's going to be about abortion, not inflation. Wow. This is a tough one. This is a tough one. Not really. (laughs) I got to give it, I got to give it to Ruben for one reason, and that is 
she managed to insult the voters in the same th- like through line of the abortion talking points. And I think for that reason, she wins. Round let's two. go. Let's go. Let's go. I, I have round three. It's all yours, Holmes. All right. Here's from yesterday. Doubt. News media commentators, pundits, and analysts must quit calling this a GOP wave election. There's absolutely zero evidence that a big wave is building for the GOP. In fact, polling over the last month shows momentum moving in Dems' favor. This will be a very tight election. (laughs) Subpoint. Wait, that's really it? That's a take? Hold on. Subpoint. That's a take? This guy lives in a state in this year he was running on a ballot uh-huh. in this state that for the first time in 120 years a his majority hispanic border district in texas in texas yes voted in favor of the republican right. did, did, for the first time yeah. in 120 zero no evidence, no evidence. zero denied <laughs> deny, <laughs> not 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 like scant at zero <laughs> Denying, state. denying the red wave is what two cable channels do 24 hours a day. That's <laughs> the most microwave bullshit. I've got some fire right here. Okay. <laughs> so the Justice Department sends out a tweet saying, Live today at 2, Attorney General Merrick Garland will deliver remarks at the first meeting of the Task Force on Reproductive Health Care Access. John Rubin replies, After he subpoenas Alex Jones's phone records. What? <laughs> Like so, like the the like Al, the, the like Merrick Garland has not done enough is a next level thing. She's like, I want Alex Jones's phone records. I feel like that is a top concern. No, the Jen act- Rubin has like the apotheosis of Jen Rubin of like the brainworms have delivered her to the point where she's like, Merrick Garland didn't fight hard enough to Merrick Garland get us Alex Jones's phone now, records. The reason the Alex so Jones awesome. thing is in there is because of the, the dude the who, drops that? who drops that? Who drops happened this who, week? Who drops that? It's take, top dude. of mind for every lib. It's Who's like, it, it, top of mind? Like the red wave not happening like twenty four hours a day on two cable channels, or only uniquely the brainworm queen can bring Merrick Garland subpoena Alex Jones's phone records. Zero. That's a champion. That's the mark of a champion. Zero evidence. Gosh, this is tough. So, uh, a point of clarification here. Yeah. From uh, from the judge, was this a quote tweet or was it a reply? Reply is reply. Okay. I mean, that makes it worse. Yeah. She's going straight to the Justice Department. It's like the way. It's like the way that people like reply. What was the reply? Did did the? That's it right there. I submit evidence of the screenshot. I to the Justice Department. Yeah, she replies right, she's, to the Justice she's Department replying to the Justice about Department. Alex Jones, bro. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not a quote tweet to her followers. It's like the sort of like madman ranting you see. You see on like your if you ever go to the Facebook page of like your local like TV station and they post some like just news, right? Like, oh, there was a crash downtown. Mm-hmm. Go into those comment sections. <laughs> And you will find stuff like that. That's the, that's I love that stuff. Yeah, that stuff is is my favorite stuff. Gosh, this is a tough one. I'm just gonna <laughs> say that this guy was a professional Republican consultant who says that there is zero evidence. Was in the big bro? Wave. Jen Rubin is the when current he, conservative he, writer for the Washington he, Post, demanding Alex Jones's phone records and a reply to the Justice Department. He is mere <laughs> he's mere miles away from a district that voted for the first time in 120 right. years Republican. So. I mean, look, this kind of goes against my instincts because, you know, I'm a man who really appreciates a misuse of the Internet. And, you know, a person like Jen Rubin doing that reply to a 
like a managed account, the Justice Department account. And doing it as a reply, not a quote tweet, is incredible. However, I mean, Dowd being a professional political commentator and saying that there's no evidence of a red wave when we've had 18 months of it is just like you you can't really top that. And for that reason, Dowd wins. Dowd. Dowd. Revenge. Revenge. I love it. All right, let's get to let's get to this interview right away. This is really good, Ronnie Jackson. I want to welcome to the program a, a really interesting guy. I'm sure you've heard a lot about over the years. He is a congressman from the great state of Texas. He's also a doctor. I don't even know whether whether to call you a doctor or a congressman, but it's Ronnie Jackson nonetheless. Welcome. Thank you. Just call me Ronnie. I appreciate it. Yeah, you got it, man. So listen, um, you've lived an incredibly interesting life, <laughs> and and now you're out with a new book which uh, to me has got to have some incredible stuff. And I'm just getting started on it, but I can't wait to read it. It's entitled Holding the Line, A Lifetime of Defending Democracy and American Values. Yep, that's right. Yeah, I just came out with it. You know, I never really intended on writing the book. Uh, a lot of people said, hey, you got a pretty interesting career. You know, I've been uh, you know, a doctor. I've ended up in the Navy. I ended up at the White House, worked for three administrations, so on and so forth. So all along, people had you know, really been pushing me. You know, you should write a book at some point, write a book. And then one day, I, I, you know, uh, after I got elected, which also I can talk about later, but I never planned on being a politician. But I, uh, as soon as you get elected, you go to orientation in D.C. before you get sworn in. And they have an ethics class and they go over everything with you. And they say, hey, look, they said, you know, you can't have any other source of income you know, as a congressman, except for the only exception is you can write a book and you can get royalties or, you know, you get, you know, money from the book that you write. And really, like, be honest with you, most people that come to Congress, a large part of them, they're independently wealthy when they get there. I personally wasn't, you know, I've been living on my Navy salary most of my career, most of my life. So uh, I thought about it, I went home and it was three days before we get sworn in. They said the difference is, is that if you, uh, if, if you sign a contract before 1159 on January 3rd, you, you can get an advance on the book. If you sign a contract after January 3rd, but, you know, 1159 on January 3rd, you can't. So I, I went home and I talked to, uh, to my wife. She's like, you should have wrote the book. And she was kind of getting on to me about not doing it. And I said, so I, uh, she said, call, call, uh, Dan Bongino, because Dan's a friend of mine, and Dan had written the book, and I knew he'd written something. So I called Dan, and Dan had his publisher call me the next day. I didn't get a really great advance because, you know, obviously the guy knew I was boxed in. I just had a, yeah. I just had a couple of days to work with, but I got a little, I got a small advance. But it prompted me to actually write the book. I don't think if that would, if that hadn't happened, I would have never really pulled the trigger on it. Wrote the book, so uh, I wrote the book. It's out there now. That box is checked. It talks a little bit about my life, you know, growing up and. My time, you know, my time in the Navy and, you know, like I said, my time at the White House and talks about January 6th, you know, my first few days in Congress uh, and, you know, talks about my uh, nomination for the VA. And there's quite a bit of stuff in there. There's a lot of interesting stories in there. You know, I was privileged to see you uh, and hear a lot as yeah. the uh, physician for three presidents. So I got to imagine what well, was so interesting about your career. First of all, you were in the Navy, you served in Iraq. Um and all of that, then you, then you come back and you work as a White House physician, which is in multiple administrations, as you say. And so your vantage point is entirely from a nonpartisan point of view, right? And it's, right. it's not right. basically until you're done with that, that you get into politics, as you say. I mean, tell us about sort of your initial onboarding into the White House and, and what prompted you to serve in a, in a White House as a White House physician. 
Well, you know, I didn't even know the job existed, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I guess it makes sense that they have a position in the White House, but I really didn't know that they had a military position in the White House. Turns out they had, when I came in, they have more now, but when I came in, they had six positions there, two Army, two Navy, and two Air Force. Hmm. They were all family practice or internal medicine. They decided that they needed an emergency medicine doc, which was actually, you know, they definitely did. And when I left, they were mostly emergency medicine docs, but they decided they needed an ER doc. So the Navy guy was the most junior. He was the next one rolling out. And so they reached out to the Navy and said, hey, give us some uh, some packages for some emergency medicine docs. Well, I was in Iraq with the second Marines. I was the officer that was in charge of the resuscitation component of a surgical shock trauma platoon between Fallujah and Ramadi right on the battlefield. Wow. And I just got an email out of nowhere and it said, hey, you've been you know, uh, selected to apply for a job at the White House. Please have your CV, your personal statement, your last six performance reports, uh, your security information, your official photo, all this stuff they wanted. And I hadn't been checking that email because it's really difficult to check your email out there. And it was a backup email for me. And when I saw it, it had been in my box for over a week, maybe uh, 10 days. And I had five days to get all that in. So I was like, you know what? This is crazy. I, you know, this is what a great opportunity, but you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. So I called my wife that night. I was talking to her. She said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, there's, you know, there's no way I'm going to get a package in. I'm out in the middle of the desert. So she had convinced me. She said, well, you should try anyways, get as much as you can, because it might be important down the road career-wise that you were considered for it. So I said, well, that actually makes sense. So I scrambled. I tried to get all my stuff together. I was ginning stuff up electronically out there. She was digging stuff out of the filing cabinet back home. You know, I, unbelievably, I got everything in before the deadline, which was just, you know, five days away. I got while you were, while you were in Iraq at the time? Yeah, while I was in Iraq, I was in, but I got it all in. But it wasn't, you know, I figured everybody else would have a nice squared away package. Mine was just going to be this big pile of garbage, right? So I figured it really didn't have a snowball's chance in hell. But uh, I got it in. I didn't hear anything for two and a half months, not a single word, right? So I thought, well, you know, and I called my detailer, you know, the guy that controls all the billets and uh, the, the, the jobs in the Navy. And he said, you know, I don't know. We turned it over to the White House. We haven't heard anything. So I figured, well, somebody else already got the job. I'm just out in the middle of the desert. I haven't heard anything. And then, like I said, it was two and a half months in. I kind of stopped checking that email again. I log on there one day. I see in my box, you've been selected as one of three people to interview for a job at the White House. Please be in D.C. for three days of interviews. And they wanted me there like in three days. But it was actually it was five days away. It was like they wanted me there by close of business on Friday. Takes you three uh, days to get home, right? Yeah, exactly, right? So uh, I thought, man, what a great opportunity. You know, I, I uh, you know, I, I got this far in the process, but I realized this is where the road ends. There's no way in hell I'm going to be in D.C., you know, in five days. And uh, so uh, I, I, you know, I was kind of in the right place at the right time, to be honest with you. And, you know, it's all I tell people success in life is about being in the right place at the right time to some extent, but also having a certain number of people around you that can see things, see success that you can't see for yourself. And they don't really have any, you know, anything to gain from your success. And I had a guy like that, the commanding general for all of the Alambar province at the time. Uh, for all the Marines in Iraq at the time, turns out this guy had been the, the military, aide, you know, the guy that carries the nuclear football for President Bush 41, for the senior uh, President Bush. So, you know, in, at you the know White something House, about the White House if you get that job. Yeah, exactly. Because the doctor and the military aide and the Secret Service agent that's in charge of the president's detail, they're what they call the emergency action team. And they're always with the president 24-7, 365, just a few steps away. So this guy had lived with the White House doctor for a couple of years. He knew exactly what I was being asked to do, even though I really didn't. So he summoned me to his office. And I didn't really know the general. He'd come through our tent a few times, our, our, our surgical tent, when we were getting casualties. But I didn't really know him very well. But he summoned me to his office. He said, tell me what's going on. I told him. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, sir, there's no way I'm going to be in you know, D.C. in five days. So I'm going to try to do a 
a, a telecom, you know, maybe a VTC or maybe a telephone interview. I don't know how competitive I'm going to be, but I'm going to give it my best shot. And he said, stand by. He picked the phone up. He called the air boss, the guy that controls all the air assets in Iraq. He's talking to him. Last thing he says is, I want his ass out of here by sunset. And he hangs the phone up. He looks at me and he goes, go pack your shit. You're leaving. And I was like, yes, sir. So I went back to my hooch and I got my sea bag and I threw some stuff in it. Uh, I went out to the flight line. I got on a helicopter, flew to Baghdad. Uh, I, at Baghdad, I, I got on a C, uh, C5 cargo plane full of broken helicopters, flew back to Cherry Point, North Carolina, got a rental car, drove to Virginia Beach where I was living at the time. And then I was in a little bit of a panic because I was supposed to be at the White House the next day interviewing. I, for three days, I was supposed to wear a business suit for yeah, two days and then a uniform say, you for a day. Got to get a suit. Yeah. Got to get got to get a tie out of that deal. Exactly. Why? Well, when I was in Iraq, I was PT and like all the time when I weren't getting cash, I lost forty pounds while I was over there. So I had no clothes that fit. So my wife and I, I was in a little bit of panic. We went just that night. We drove to the to the men's warehouse. I bought a new suit. I gave them my sob story. I begged them to tailor it for me on the spot. They hooked me up made it presentable, brought my uniform in. They helped me with that a little bit. Got back in my rental car, drove to the White House, interviewed for three days. At the end of the three days, they told me I got the job. I got back on a plane, went back to, uh, to Iraq, uh, finished my tour for the next four months, and then came straight from Iraq to the White House. And that was early 2006. And I was the new junior White House physician for George W. Bush. That's how I started. Unbelievable. I mean, that yeah. is just an incredible story. And I imagine, you know, I, I don't know much about your growing up, but I got to imagine nothing would prepare you for actually being a guy that works in the White House at that point. No, not, I mean, really, I, mean, I grew up in a hardworking blue collar family. My dad was an electrician. My mom was a homemaker. Nobody in my family even went to college. I was the first one in my family to go to college. And they didn't place a lot of emphasis on higher education either. You know, my dad's attitude was like, you finish high school, uh, you know, you get your butt out and, and, and start working and getting some seniority. And, you know, and that was kind of what was expected of me. But I ended up, you know, going to junior college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Ended up going to Texas A&M McGalveston's Marine Biology major. I ended up just stumbling into medicine, never really planned on being a doctor, but needed some extra money when I was in school, went across the street to the medical school to get a job, got a job as an autopsy assistant. I just was thinking I was going to work in a chemistry lab or something. They said, we're going to put you to work in the pathology department as an autopsy assistant. I was like, all right, whatever. So my job is to do the autopsy. You're like, do the checks come every two weeks? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Exactly. Right. And, uh, you know, my job is to like open the body up, take all the organs out, cut the skull off, take the brain out. I'd pass it down to the end of the table to the, uh, to the pathology uh, resident. They would dissect everything out and figure out why the person died. But what they started doing is teaching me a little bit. You know, they'd be like, hey, remember that liver you took out yesterday? I was like, yeah, come look at this one. This guy's got liver cancer. See the difference? And I got a little bit interested in medicine. I thought, you know what? I might want to be a doc. It's the first time it ever crossed my mind. Well, I've been a firefighter and I'd worked with air paramedics and EMTs. I knew I wanted to be an ER doc if I did it, not a pathologist, but I kind of got interested in it. And then that led me ultimately in, in going into the military because I didn't have any money to pay for med school. So right. once I got into med school, then I applied for the military scholarship and, you know, and I got it and it's four, it's year for year. So four years of med school, four years of payback. Thought I was going to get in, just do my four years payback and then get right back out, be a rich emergency medicine doc somewhere in Texas, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, but, you know, what happened is I got in there, man. I love my job. I got in and I found out, like I told you, I was a marine biologist and I was big into diving and I you know, spent a lot of time diving. That was my thing. And when I got into the, to the Navy, as soon as they sent me to, to my first duty station at the Naval Hospital, Portsmouth, Virginia, uh, as soon as the day I graduated from med school, I, uh, I found out about this program called a diving medical officer where you could be a diver and a doctor. I was like, man, that's like tailor made for me. So I applied for this program. They sent me straight to Panama City, Florida, put me completely through six months of Navy deep sea diving school. 
became a fully fledged Navy DC diver, you know, walking around on the bottom with the helmet and a hose and everything. But I was also a doctor. So I was a doctor and a diver. So for the next five years, they preferentially assigned me to diving units. So I was with the explosive ordnance disposal teams, like underwater demolition type stuff, uh, uh, underwater salvage, Navy SEALs, things like that. And so I spent the next five years just like jumping out of airplanes, fast dropping out of helicopters, locking out of submarines with the SEALs, blowing stuff up, shooting all kinds of weapons. So I like just got hooked on it, man. And I, I, four years came, four years went. I never considered getting out of the Navy. And then I ended up doing 25 years of active duty, ultimately retiring as a Navy Rear Admiral from the White House. So it was kind of weird how it all just came together. I mean, kind of one thing led to another. Let me just tell you, there it's a long, strange trip from being an autopsy assistant to checking the vitals on a president of the United States. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I got I got to imagine when you first got there in the White House and the Bush administration, you got to be pretty nervous about that deal, right? I mean, for those of us- Well, who it was are, different, you know? I mean, yeah. I came from Iraq, so I was pretty like, I was pretty seasoned, you know? There was nothing that could fluster me, you know, as far as, I, I, when I left that place, I was like, I don't care what comes through the door, I can handle anything that happens, because we had some bad injuries out yeah. there, you know? We had guys coming in every day with the arms and legs blown off, their bowels hanging out with eviscerations, gray matter hanging out, they had horrible burns. But then I got to the White House and I realized it was, it, it was also, you know, well, let me just say when I was when I was in Iraq, a crisis was that, you know, that some of these guys would roll onto my triage pad all at once with their, like I said, their arms and legs blown off. When I got to the White House, a crisis was like, oh, my God, I've got the wrong brand of Band-Aids in my bag or something. Right. Just as just as big a deal in some people's mind. But, you know, so I had to kind of recalibrate myself, you know, this uh, going from combat medicine to concierge medicine literally overnight was kind of a big adjustment. Oh, I, I mean, it's got to be the biggest adjustment in the world. I mean, you're seeing combat yeah. wounds, then all of a sudden, you, you know, like a president who's generally in pretty good health anyway, is yeah. like, you're just walking around seeing if he has a different limp in his step, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. So, so you served in the, in the Bush administration, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And I think where that's most right. people got to know you was your time in the Trump administration and like anybody who had any sort of relationship with the Trump administration during those four years, uh, everybody comes after you for one, one oh, yeah. or another. And I got to imagine that was a little disorienting from a guy who basically made his entire living at that point, knowing medicine and knowing, knowing the Navy and knowing public service, all of a sudden you're in partisan politics. Yeah, when you get the Trump stamp on you, man, you better be tough, right? Because they're coming after you. And that's what happened to me. And like you said, I was there that entire time. I was nonpartisan. I was on active duty. So I really didn't, I, I didn't get paid to have a political opinion. I got paid to, paid to take care of the president of the United States and the office to the president. And I took care of the Secret Service and Air Force One and the President's Helicopter Squadron and Camp David and everybody else that surrounded the president. But that was my job was the, was the medical part of it. Uh, and I didn't, you know, and I, I was with him at the White House. I was with him anywhere he traveled, uh, whether it was the United States or overseas. I was with him 24-7, 365. I was with him all the time. But what happened is, you know, whenever I uh, uh, did President Trump's physical, I think you remember, that yeah. was whenever I really got the Trump stamp. I mean, I was a little bit naive. I didn't really actually realize it until after the fact that that was the day that the press decided they could, if they could ever cut my heart out, they were going to do it. Right. And so, you know, I got up there, just freaked this physical, really disarmed the press, made the White House press corps look, you know, just like a bunch of idiots, to be honest with you. Uh, and, you know, and it just took all that stuff off the table because they've been talking about President Trump not being mentally or physically fit to be the president. And there was nothing there was nothing that caused them to say that. 
especially on the mental side, except for they didn't like his personality. They didn't like the way he tweeted. They didn't like the, the nature of his tweets. That was basically it, which I'll compare later because we have a president right now who's <laughs> literally a, an absolute cognitive mess. And we're, we're those people now, crickets. Nobody. I was just going to say, if for you, it's yeah. got to be a little bit jarring when you've got a guy who's obviously having some trouble in the White House now and nobody even asks the question. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, and, and that's ultimately what led me here to be uh, the congressman from the 13th Congressional District of Texas. Because if you remember, after I did that press brief, you know, and I got to know, and the reason I did that, because when President Trump showed up in office, I didn't know him at all. I'd never met him, right? And I was his appointed physician day one. And that was because I made a deal with the transition team that was coming in. They were all Bush folks. And they knew me from the Bush years. They asked me to stay because I was planning to retire. I had all kinds of awesome jobs lined up and I was leaving. And they said, we need you to stay because we have so many balls in the air and the White House Medical Unit is not a problem. It's we're hitting on all cylinders. Just please stay and see us through the transition. So I said, I'll stay six months, not a day longer. And I'm out and I'll find somebody to replace me that you're happy with. They said, OK, great. So they gave me everything I wanted. I was an appointed physician, physician to the president and assistant to the president day one. Uh, and, you know, but I didn't really know the president. So I took an opportunity to get to know him. I just I have an earpiece in every day, you know, and I hear the Secret Service call out. You know, they call out his movements no matter where he's at. They call out every time he moves from one room to another. And they call out in the mornings, you know, that uh, Mogul was on the elevator headed over. Mogul was his call sign. Mogul on the elevator uh, headed downstairs. And so I'd get up because my office was directly below the president's bedroom in the White House proper. Right. And so the elevator door that comes from his from his living quarters opens up right in front of my office door. So he'd come in and come down and you, you know, everybody knows him well enough through the media and stuff to know that he's up for about three hours before anybody else, you know, shows up at the White House. He's watching TV, tweeting, talking on the phone, whatever. By the time he drops down that elevator, man, he's looking for somebody to talk to, right? Yeah. So he'd drop down that elevator and I'd say, good morning, Mr. President. He'd walk over and he'd say, hey, doc, did you see this? Did you see that? And he'd just strike up a conversation with me. Nothing to do with medicine, right? It would be, you know, it, which has got to be super unique, right? I mean, and I can't yeah. imagine you had that relationship with other, with previous presidents where you've got a guy who's not asking anything to do with your job, but just sort of observations at the, of the world at large. Well, I did. I had casual conversations with the others too, but not to the extent that I did with Trump. You know I mean? Like I said, you know, he was really like, looking for somebody to talk to when he came down. I'd talk to the others, you know, more, the conversations were briefer, maybe a little bit more superficial, but I'd get into some pretty in-depth conversations with President Trump and I'd start talking. Like I said, it would be anything. It could be from Iran to Stormy Daniels, just whatever was in the news that day, right? right, right. And and we'd start talking, it'd be like, walk with me. So I'd walk him to work. I'd walk him down the West Colonnade, down the Oval Colonnade, right into the back of the Oval Office. We'd tie up our conversation. You know, the, uh, the CIA briefer, the chief of staff, the national security advisor, whoever would be in the outer oval waiting to come in. Uh, I'd finish up my conversation. I'd walk out, they'd walk in as day would start. And so I just got in the habit of doing that, like, you know, three out of five mornings. And I got to know him really well. And I, I realized right off the bat, I really loved the guy, right? I loved his attitude. I loved his straightforwardness. I just loved his approach to things. And he developed a lot of trust and confidence in me. And then, you know, fast forward, I did his physical about a year later. We'd already got a pretty tight relationship. And then one day I'm on Air Force One. We're coming back from Mar-a-Lago and he's walking up to the front cabin and his office in his bedroom in, the, in Air Force One is at the very front of the plane. And my my space, my medical space where I'm at is right behind that. So he walks past me and he sees me in there. He goes, hey, doc, come up. I got to ask you a question. So he calls me up to his office. So I go up in the Air Force One to his office and I sit down and he said, I said, yes, sir. And he goes, I need you to do me a favor. And I said, yes, sir. What do you need? And he goes, I want you to be one of my cabinet secretaries. And I said, what? And I was like, and he goes, I want you to be my VA secretary. And I said, and he goes, you can do it, right? And I go, hey, yeah, I can do it. But where did this come from? 
and you know, he just was like, you know, Ronnie, you're the right guy for the job. You know, you and I talk about veterans issues and about defense and all this stuff all the time. You're a veteran. You got your kids are in the military. He goes, you understand it. You get it. You're not controlled by the lobby or by the, the, you know, the, the, the $280 billion year budget, you know, all this other stuff. He said, you're, you're going to do what's best for the vets. And I know it. And you're the right guy for the job. So long story short, he nominates me, go through the nomination process. You know, all that. The press comes after me. They try to tear me down. Deep state Republicans are in on it. They look the other way while I'm getting butchered and so on and so forth. I end up drawing my nomination because I know I'm not going to get nominated. I'm not going to get confirmed in the Senate because I even got the, some of the Republicans looking the other way and like kind of let it happen. The reason was because they had already picked somebody that they wanted to be the secretary of the VA, somebody that they knew and that they controlled and that they had influence over. I wasn't that guy. You know, uh, when I say they, I mean everybody but the president. You know, President Trump picked me, and so he he kind of kind of tipped the apple cart for them. And so they they went into damage control and tried to get rid of me. Well, ultimately, I withdrew my nomination, but it led me to a point where I was getting ready to leave the White House. You know, I, I, I stayed on. The president asked me to stay on. He promoted me when I first came on. I was deputy assistant to the president, and then he promoted me to assistant to the president, made me chief medical advisor, and wanted me to stay. He didn't want me to leave. So I said, okay, that'd be a nice change. I'll be working on some policy issues. So I did. At that point, I was a little bit political. I was the first time I'd really had yes. anything that was political at the White well, House. It's hard not to go through months. that nomination process, yeah. even for a day, without becoming political. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, and so it, it, it changed me, you know what I mean? And I, 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 tell, I just tell my constituents, man, I was like, you know, the one thing I got to offer, you put me in office. And I said, the one thing I can give you that the other candidates that were running, you know, the Republican primary against me at the time is, I said, I don't give a damn what they say about me anymore. And that's kind of how I am now. You know, it, it prepared me, it prepared my family where we can fight the fight. We don't we don't worry about what the press or you know what the liberal media or the mainstream media or you know anybody says about me. We just push forward. I do what I think is right. I say what I think needs to be said, and I move on. And so it really put me in a good position. But you know, I, I, I decided just out of nowhere at the end of that time. Uh, you know, about probably like eight months after the nomination, after I was due my nomination, I said, you know what? I'm not done yet. I had all these job offers. I, I was I, I, you know, making way more money than I'm making now, but I said, I'm not done yet. I'm, I'm going to get in the fight. And I'm going to do something about what's going on in our country. Cause I was getting more and more concerned every day about the path that we were taking. And so I did, I ran for office. I filed two hours before the filing deadline and uh, there were already 15 people in the race, but you know, I got in, I won and here I am. Uh, it's an amazing story. It's an incredible story from where you started your professional career to where you where you are now, no question about. It. Let me ask you, uh, because I'm sure you work with a lot of really talented doctors in the White House and and in Iraq and in your service. When you look at how clearly the press handles President Biden and yeah. receiving no questions that that you all had during the Trump era, now how difficult is that from a a, a doctor's point of view? If you're a White House physician. Knowing that eh, this is not going to be an easy conversation yeah. if I'm the one that's standing behind the podium. Well, it's, it, you know, it, it, it made me angry, you know, and it still does the double standard, the hypocrisy, right? Because they came after me with everything they had, man. They picked apart every single little detail of everything I said or wrote down. And then Biden gets a complete pass. The guy literally doesn't know where he's at, what he's doing, what day it is. He's confused. He's shuffling around when he walks. He's slurring his speech. He can't even read a teleprompter and nobody says anything. Right. And I kind of got myself in a bind. I burned some of my bridges with president Obama early on in my campaign, because Darren, when he was candidate, Joe Biden, I was saying this, this guy is not cognitively fit to be our president, our commander in chief and the leader of the free world. He is not. Right? I could tell. I mean, everybody knew it, but nobody was willing to say it at the time. Now everybody's talking about it, which I said yeah. they would. But, you know, I, I basically tweeted out Ronald McDaniel tweeted something out one day where he was standing up, you know, and he was talking and he thought he was running for the Senate. He didn't know which state he was in. You know, she tweeted a video of that. 
And I just retweeted that and I said, wow, does anybody remember the cognitive test that I gave at real Donald Trump, the one that he aced? Looks like somebody else needs a test. Scary. That's literally all I said. That was kind of the first shot across the bow from as far as tweets go uh, about me tweeting out about his cognitive stuff. I sent it out within 20 minutes. I was driving to a campaign event in Wichita Falls, Texas. Within 20 minutes, I got, you know, my phone's ding. I get this email, this scathing email from President Obama just tearing me up, man. Oh, He's man. like, Ronnie, you know, I consider you a friend and this, that, and the other. And doctor, I cannot believe the cheap shot you took with Joe. Uh, you know, it's beneath you as a Navy Rear Admiral. It's beneath you as a position of the president. Uh, you know, it's a direct assault on me, my family, and my administration, the people that work with you and, you know, and, and care so about Obama you. Obama himself sends you this? Yeah, it just, yeah, directly from Obama, let her straight wow. him, just tear, tearing me up. I hope you use better judgment in the future and everything. I mean, it was, you know, it kind of, I don't know, it had a weird effect on me, to be honest with you, because it pissed me off a little bit, but also hurt my feelings just a little bit too. You know, it was, it was a weird kind of emotional thing for me. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to write him back and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to write him back. I'm going to pick the phone up and call him. I'm just going to call him. And, but I was already late for a campaign event. So I rushed into this event. I did this event. I was in there for about an hour and a half. By the time I came out, I had a little bit of time to think about it. So I walked out and I thought, you know what, before I call him, I'm going to call and talk to somebody and just kind of make sure I kind of go over this in my head so I don't say anything I'm going to regret. So I thought to myself, I'm going to call Dan Bongino, right? Because Dan was a Secret Service agent at the White House with me during the Obama administration. He got out. He got butchered a little bit, and ostracized a little bit from the White House and some of the people he had worked with. during, you know, and So he kind of gone through what I had gone through. So I said, Dan's going to understand kind of what, how this makes me feel, right? So I called, I called Dan up and I said, hey, Dan, what are you thinking? Dan, Dan set me straight right off the bat. Dan said, Ronnie, you don't know this guy, damn thing. Don't you, don't you even respond to this, man. He goes, did that guy do anything to help you? Did he lift one finger when you were getting butchered you know, uh, during your VA nomination? He knew that was all garbage. He knew it was all lies. He One phone call from that guy to test her or anybody on the Senate Veterans Affairs or anybody, one phone call from that guy saying, this is BS, stand down, it would have uh, been over. He didn't do anything to help you. He said, yeah. you don't know this guy, nothing. And I thought, you know what? He's absolutely right. So I just moved on. I never talked about it, but it's in my book now. So I published it in my book and that's how it's come out in the last few days in the press is because I've talked about it in the book. Amazing bunch of stories. And for anybody who needs to buy this book, who, who wants a little summer reading, you got to get it. It's holding the line, a lifetime of defending democracy and American values. I can't wait to get through the rest of it. Ronnie, I could talk to you for like three hours about these stories. These are fantastic. But I got to ask you three big questions that we ask everybody right, here on the program, all right? I'm interested all in this because you've got a real lifetime of experience and probably some time in the White House mess that may inform some of these decisions. But the first, the first question is, if you can plan your last meal on earth, what would it be? Well, I can tell you what it won't be. It won't be some of the stuff I ate on the road and uh, on the White House. It, it won't be a balut, which is a, you know, a, a, a fertilized chicken egg they bury in the ground or a duck egg they bury in the ground for a few months. I ate one of those. I'm never doing that again. Wow. It won't be dog. It won't be dog penis when they're in Korea next time. I ate, I ate a whole plate of dog penis one time. I'm not doing that again. But if I had to plan it, it would probably be fried steak, fried okra, uh, mac and cheese, mashed potatoes, and then followed up by blackberry cobbler uh, with vanilla bell ice cream. Well, you could tell exactly where you're from by that order. Mm -hmm. I, I got to tell you, I did not see dog penis coming in this interview. That is, that is another level, my man. I could write a whole book on some of the strange things I've eaten overseas. I traveled to 120 different countries during my time at the White House. And believe me, we were offered some weird stuff. I, I got a feeling you got to have a sequel. It's just a it's sort of a culinary exploration because yeah. that is unbelievable. Yeah. I've never even heard of that. Um, all right. All right. I got to reset and recalibrate my, <laughs> my mind now that I've gone down that road. Uh, my the second question, 
if you never got into public service at all, and I'm including your, your military career in that, and you have this sort of blue sky timeline at 20 years, you can fill it with anything in the world that you would want to do that you haven't done. What do you think it'd be? Well, I think I probably would have ended up being a marine biologist. I told you I went to Texas a and I was a marine biology major. So I think I would have been a marine biologist. I would have moved off to a small island in the South Pacific. And right now I'd be sitting on a, a beach, white sand, uh, just relaxing on the beach, uh, maybe drinking a Corona and hanging out with, uh, with, with the four or five wives that I would probably have. Uh, I'm that part of the country. So that would kind of, that's kind of what I see in my head, but it would have been my alternative. <laughs> that's a pretty good blue sky right there. I like that, Ronnie. That's good. That's good. I still can't believe you were able to fuse the two of your, your interest in diving and medicine all in one. I mean, you must have talked about being in the right place at the right time. That is a, that's an opportunity that presented specifically for you. Yeah, it was great. It was a great opportunity. That's awesome. All right. So my third question, you got to follow me a little bit with this one because it's a little esoteric, but our view is that most successful people are motivated by one of two things, either the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. And it's not that anybody enjoys losing, right? Or, or doesn't right. like winning. It's like what motivates you, right? And, the, and the, the thrill of victory people are always the sunny optimist charging up the hill to the next goal. The agony of defeat people are anybody who, who fits into that category Every victory that they've had in life lasts like five seconds, but any defeat or major setback that they've had, they carry around like a backpack as a motivation to do better, to work harder, to, to never put themselves in that situation again, or to achieve basically what people say they can't, right? Those are the two poles. Ronnie, where do you find yourself? So I think anybody that's really successful probably motivated in a large part by both of those, right? And I think I am motivated by, uh, you know, uh, the, the thrill of, you know, uh, of success for the most part until I get close to the end. And then I think it's the agony of defeat that drives you forward, you know, and I do, I do take my defeats a lot harder, uh, right. You know, I, I carry those a lot longer than I do, you know, enjoy my victories. So I would say that I'm probably in the second category a little bit more, but I do enjoy, you know, winning. I do enjoy victory and I do look forward to that. And that, that, that usually motivates me to get started on stuff and to get, you know, 90% of the way down, down the road, of, of being successful on something, but it's the fear of not finishing, uh, you know, and, and not, you know, and not closing the loop on stuff and, and, and not meeting expectations that probably drives me the last 10, 15% drives me usually over the top. Very well articulated. I got to tell you the story you told before about going through the nomination process and immediately deciding that you're going to become a congressman. That's a, that's an absolute agony of defeat guy. Yeah, yeah, that is, yeah. That is, yeah. That's a perfect yeah. one. Like, no way you could take that on the chin if you're an agony of defeat guy and not come back with some retribution, right? And the good news is for the American people is I'm still carrying it. I'm not done yet. They're, yeah, they, yeah. they're gonna have to deal with me for a while. <laughs> I love it. I love mm -hmm. it. Well, your book available anywhere you get your books, download or or in hard copy. I heart, very much recommend people get it. For any other way to keep up with you, uh, to see what you're up to, you got a website for everybody? Yeah, we do. Uh, actually, I think it's uh, it's uh, Ronnie Jackson, uh, 13 Texas. I'm actually I'm not real sure, but if you Google online, you can find it. Just Google Ronnie Jackson and you'll find my website. You can go there and keep up with me and you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook and Truth and all the social media sites. Well, listen, Congressman Ronnie Jackson fascinating story, fascinating book. Stay in touch. We want to know sort of as these things work out, uh, what your view is on a whole range of topics. So let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Love your podcast. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Ronnie. Take care. 
What a personality on that guy, huh? I want like five more hours with Ronnie Jackson. And you know, like for someone who in my, you know, esteem is like the opposite of President Obama, the fact that they've both eaten dog is interesting. (laughs) 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 You you don't last through three administrations without being able to laugh about stuff. You got to think that this guy is, I mean, I was just really glad to hear what he had to say. Great sense of humor. I loved having it. I think we did it, fellas. I got to say so. Absolute banger of an episode gentlemen thank you so much to rep ronnie jackson showing up on the show show up in person love to hang out with him so until next time minions keep the faith hold the line and own the libs we'll see you on tuesday stay ruthless